Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Along with my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman, I'm Dan Newman, welcoming you to yet another episode of the Hello Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We hope that you like what you hear tonight, and if you do, you can check us out on Facebook at Hello Old Sports Podcast. You can email us, Sports at gmail.com. And you can please, if you so desire, rate us, review us, give us a nice five-star rating on iTunes. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear. We always enjoy hearing from our fans. So with that, I will introduce my co-host, Andrew. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I am doing well, Dan. I am uh, excited for our, our topic tonight. We are getting into a topic that... You know, I like some of this. I almost said I like some of the stuff we do. You know, I like when we do the years, the specific years of stuff. That's fun. You know, we've we've interviewed some people recently that has been a lot of fun. But one of the things that that kind of excited me the most when we started doing a podcast is like episodes on stuff that are kind of unique. Like I've never heard a podcast talk about what we're going to talk about tonight from this angle um you know not that none of these stories have ever been told obviously they have but you know th- this is just like a, a novel enough concept to me at least that i'm i'm excited for it so what we're going to talk about is we've taken uh and i, I came up with the list but i think andrew was basically in concurrence in five sports Football, baseball, hockey, basketball, and uh, heavyweight boxing. We picked the five guys who largely are considered the greatest of all time, at least uh, in my mind. And I think Andrew probably mostly agrees. And that's Babe Ruth. That's Michael Jordan. That's Wayne Gretzky. It's Muhammad Ali. And it's Tom Brady. And we are going to talk about the last game that each ever played. Or in the case of Muhammad Ali, we're going to talk about his last ever professional fight. And I kind of got this idea sort of in waves. And I think it was something that had kind of been floating through the back of my mind. I remember Michael Jordan's last game in 2003 when he was with the Wizards. I remember watching it on TV. I sort of have I wasn't really much of a hockey fan in those days. Uh, Not much of one now, if if I'm being fair. But I, I really I kind of was tangentially aware of Gretzky's last game, especially because it was with the Rangers. And I, you know, I now remember obviously Brady's last game. And it was kind of uh, when I was at the 2022 uh, Sabre convention in Baltimore, I picked up a book called Last Time Out, which is by a guy named John Nagowski, Big League Farewells of Baseball's Greats. And that is a whole book 
devoted just to that topic, um, just among baseball players, obviously. So I was kind of kicking it around in my head. And then during it was actually we were I don't know if you remember this, Andrew, we were recording our podcast in January. I think it was I think it was the episode that we did on our baseball Hall of Fame ballot for 2023. And I had the game on the playoff game, the Bucks Cowboys game. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I look over and it's, I think, 24 to nothing Dallas. And I was like, oh, geez, I guess that's going to be Brady's last game. And then that kind of really kind of clicked for me there. Like, wouldn't that be kind of a cool episode to take the ones who are largely considered the greatest of all time in their respective sports and talk about their sort of the story leading up to their last game and then their last game? Yeah, and sort of is a... um sort of is a uh, preview of this, although I don't mean this flippantly, but outside of Gretzky, who kind of just right before his last game confirmed everybody's speculation that he was planning on retiring, the other four of these are in to some degree of sad um, or embarrassing. And there's a sliding scale there, but um, you know, the one of them is much worse than the rest of them. You know, whether it be tumultuous nature of Tom Brady's whole last season, just the entire aspect of Michael Jordan's leave it. Michael Jordan, if we had had this conversation without the Wizards thing, we'd be talking about the perfect ending. And instead, we're talking about, you know, really his whole tenure with the Wizards was was you know, not good in any regard. Um, Ruth, who we'll, who we'll talk about, was bad. And then Ali's is the worst of all of them, which we'll, which we'll touch on. So it's, you know, we'll try to do justice to sort of the lead up to all of these. But, you know, I think it underscores the point that with very, very few exceptions, nobody goes out when they should or when when it would be the best. You know, nobody goes out at the top of their game for the most part. It's rare. Yeah. And maybe that'll be a topic for a future episode. We can kind of talk about some guys who did go out on top of the ones that immediately come to mind for me. Uh, Sandy Koufax, Jim Brown, mm-hmm. within like nine months of each other, Sandy Koufax and Jim Brown, uh, Bill Russell. Elway went out on top. Um, DiMaggio went out winning a World Series. He was obviously, you know, coming towards the end of his prime. You probably got to throw Mar- Marciano in there. Forty nine. Nothing. Um, 49 and 0 record when he retires. So there are guys that do it. But what's interesting is that of those five greatest of all time, none went out with even a, a with the exception of Brady, none went out with even a playoff loss. And Brady's playoff loss was a blowout and also a very strange game for for reasons that um reasons that we'll get into a little bit. Before we start off with this, do you basically agree with my selection of these five as sort of the the greatest of all time in their respective sports? Yeah, and this isn't the episode to quibble with. I mean, Ruth, there's really we're not even even if I would personally argue against any one of these, and I don't think I would, but even if I would, these are the consensus best players of all time in each sport. Um Maybe a little bit of a disagreement some people might have about Brady. Well, you know, it's such it's so hard to compare positions and eras and Jim Brown. Um, 
I know there is a sizable, small but vocal minority of people who insist that Mario Lemieux was a better player than Wayne Gretzky was, mostly concentrated in that Western Pennsylvania area. But no, I mean, you couldn't do this with anybody. Not only do I think they're the best in each respective division. These are the icons. And the point is, they were acknowledged as, at the moment they retired, they were acknowledged as the best player to have ever done it in their sport, which is a key aspect of this. All right. So we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Uh, I think uh, chronologically, maybe it might be the right way to go here, huh? Sure, we can do it chronologically. Um, so I guess that would start us with uh, Babe Ruth and the story of his couple of months with the 1935 Braves, correct? Yep, and his last game, May 30th, 1935, versus the Philadelphia Phillies at, I guess, would that have been uh, the Baker Bowl at that point in Philadelphia? I think by 35, they were full-time to Shy Park, but I could be wrong. I'd have to check that. I'll, I'll check that now, but you know, if you want to uh, just introduce it a little bit. So Babe Ruth, uh, obviously... Great all-time players, uh, most notably with the Yankees, is traded to the Yankees in 1920, just in time for the 1920 season, and goes on to play uh, 15 legendary seasons with the New York Yankees in uh, wins. What does he win? He wins uh, four World Series, makes it to another three, and sets records for all-time uh, and single-season home run records that just dwarf what has ever been done before, and people think that there's a chance that these records might not ever be broken. By 1935, by 1935, Babe Ruth is really starting to age a little bit. He is 40 years of age going into the 1935 season, he actually, the funny thing is, is that Ruth actually does not have a terrible season in 1934 with yeah. the Yankees. He's 39. He hits for a 288 average. The first time his only the second time uh, since 1917 that his average dips below 300 and he hits 288 with 22 home runs, 84 RBIs. The Yankees uh, do not win the pennant. They finish. Second, with a 94 and 60 record to the Detroit Tigers in the American League. So, despite the fact that by the time he gets to Boston with the Braves in 1935, he is broken down and old, it really happens quickly. It's more just that Ruth is kind of starting to, to wear out his welcome. It's been made clear to him that he's never going to be the manager of the Yankees, which is something that he really very much wanted. He doesn't get along very well with Joe McCarthy, who's the new manager of the Yankees. But as rapid as the decline would be for Ruth in 35 with the Braves, he's still a pretty good player in 1934. Yeah, he had 22 homers and 84 RBIs in 34. You mentioned he hit 288, which was well off of his career numbers, but still he was far from useless. You know, he was still a very good 
worthwhile player for the Yankees or at the very least a hitter. Um, you know, by the early 30s, it was becoming more and more Lou Gehrig's team. In 1931, Joe McCarthy became the manager. Um, he doesn't like Ruth because he believes Ruth is a communist. Um, that God, God. that's not Joe- what, that is a different oh. Joe McCarthy. Yep. Different Joe McCarthy. Got it. Um, no, so Ruth has always been sort of fixated on becoming a manager. and Or or later in his career, he was. In 1934, Ruth starts really openly campaigning to become the manager, a position that is filled at the moment by Joe McCarthy, who's won a world championship with the Yankees already. Um, they basically offer him like a peace offering of saying, we can, we'll make you the, the manager of our top farm team i believe the newark eagles or the newark something was the team name newark bears uh, newark bears okay i think newark eagle was the newspaper um or was that a negro league team i think the newark eagles were a negro league team okay so it's my, my mistake um ruth kind of dismisses that as beneath him to become a minor league man or become a farm team manager so the 34 offseason Ruth goes on this around the world tour, primarily to Japan. Um, he, during that tour, Rupert is trying to essentially send Ruth away to somewhere where he can become a manager. Um, I think this has gotten portrayed a little as the Yankees, like casting aside Ruth. And I guess you could argue to an extent they did, but like at the same time, based on what we're going to talk about, were they wrong to do that? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. to make to, you know, he obviously does not have much good baseball in front of him. So, you know, they start asking around American league teams. Cause this is still very much the days of, you know, loyalty between leagues and things like that. But ultimately they end up with a, he ends up with a deal to essentially sell Ruth outright to the Boston Braves who are, you know, a very much an also ran team in Boston. The Red Sox have have been the the major team in in Boston for a very long time at this point. Um, it I, I might pronounce both of his names wrong, but Emil Fuchs is the owner of the Braves at the time. Um, Judge Emil Fuchs. Judge Emil Fuchs. Um, Unable to afford the rent at Brave Field, Fuchs had considered holding dog races there when the Braves were not at home, only to be turned down by Landis. Um, Rupert said he would not release Ruth to go to another team as a full-time player. So they basically come up with this deal where Ruth, because Ruth's also not all that interested in being a full-time player anymore, um, where they're going to send Ruth to the Braves. The Braves are interested in him as a gate attraction. Ruth goes to, will go to the Braves with the basically fake title of assistant manager and they either imply directly or indirectly that Ruth will take over as manager in 1936, which they never had any intention of doing. So that's the stage for which Babe Ruth comes to the Boston Braves. He's back in Boston where his career started back 20 years earlier uh, with the Red Sox dynasty of the 19 teens He's in the national league for the first time at 40 years old. And the story of the next two months is him realizing that he's essentially a show pony for the Braves to, and really by law, by, you know, the national league writ large to 
get some money in the turnstiles. Just a little bit about the team he joins. You mentioned Judge Emil Fuchs, who is an actual judge. I think he's an expert in election law, I believe. The Braves actually have not been that bad over the last couple of years, despite what they do in 1935. Just two years earlier, they had had a winning record. They were 83-71-2. That was good enough for fourth in the National League. They're managed by a guy by the name of Bill McKechnie, who's in the Hall of Fame as a manager. I'm sorry? Not for this. Not for this, no. In fact, this is probably the team that uh, McKechnie has the least amount of success with. He uh, manages four different National League teams in his career, which begins in 1922 and goes all the way until 1946. He wins a pennant with the Cardinals in 28. Two years or three years earlier, he'd won a World Series with Pittsburgh in 25. And then after Boston, he moves on to the Reds uh, and wins a pennant in 39 and then a World Series in 40. So this is a this is a really good manager and a guy, like I said, who was in the Hall of Fame. But the team is not doing well. They play at Braves Field, which, as I can attest, is only about uh a mile or so from Fenway Park. It is on the site of uh, the present day uh, sports field uh, arena stadium, whatever you want to call it for Boston University. Football. Which is what I believe, which is what I believe most Boston University students refer to athletic facilities as as what sports field arena stadium, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Well, it's hard to know what it would ever. And I was about to misspeak and say football. They haven't had a football team in 25 years. So it, it's where the soccer and, <laughs> and field hockey and all those things are played. So, yeah. So he joins this team. He quickly realizes that this is not the same as what he is used to with the Yankees. Uh, you mentioned the thing about the um, the dog racing at Braves Field. That is something that Fuchs wants to do at Braves Field. This so angers his other owners that Kennesaw Mountain Land, as the commissioner of baseball, threatens to quit if Fuchs holds dog races at Braves Field, which feels a little bit extreme that the commissioner would so object to one of the 16 teams holding dog racing that he would quit his job as commissioner. But let, uh, let me let me let's just go down this road, which is a brief deep detour. Admittedly, let's let's just go down this road a little bit real quick. Hypothetically, Kennesaw Mountain Landis quits in 1934 because of the Braves owner hosting dog races at Braves Field. Baseball likely gets integrated a little quicker. <laughs> and the history of baseball is different because Kennesaw Mountain Landis quits over dog racing at Braves Field. Yeah, and there are, I should say, there are different interpretations as to just how much of a role Landis played in maintaining the color line in that last decade or so. But most people believe that he was at least somewhat of a culprit. So you're right. It, it would have been funny if dog racing had forced baseball to or caused baseball to cross the uh, uh, tear down the color barrier a year or 10 years or so early. Absolutely. One of the other things that happens is early on, I don't know whether this is in spring training or in uh, the beginning of the season, but Ruth comes in to the locker room and he sees 
about two dozen baseballs on a table by his locker. And he says something along the lines of, do I really have to sign all of these balls, all two dozen of these balls? And somebody says to him, they said, no, babe, those are the balls. we. Those are all the balls we have to play with is those 24 baseballs. So it's a little bit different from the New York Yankees, the Braves in 1935. They haven't won a pennant in 20 years, 21 years, actually, since the 1914 Miracle Braves. That that team obviously is is largely gone, although one of Ruth's teammates is a guy by the name of Rabbit Moranville, who we actually talked about a little bit uh, a couple episodes ago when we did our all time teams. He, having already been retired for a year, rejoins the Braves for 23 games at 43 years of age in the 1935 season. So there are not one, but two aging hall of famers on the Boston Braves in 1935. And I just want to tell another really little quick story here about rabbit Moranville, who probably because he's 43 is injured. He has a broken leg and his leg had to be rebroken uh, because of the, um, the bone hadn't been set properly originals and so in order to rehab do you know what he does to rehab his injury no he dances Hmm. i didn't have anybody to dance with he told the sports writer so i danced alone people used to come into the house look at me and go away shaking their heads they thought i was nuts but all the while i was getting my leg in shape so i believe that's still what they do today (laughs) So just a little bit of the atmosphere of what is going on with the Braves as the 1935 National League season begins. And with the exception, really, of one day, it's sort of an unmitigated disaster for Babe Ruth. Well, two days. He does hit two home runs or he has a two run home run on opening day and makes a nice play in the field. Um, So that's the season starts off on a, on a positive note, but you know, other than that, Ruth is old. He can't really, he's really can't play the field. You know, they've got him primarily in left field and he's at, you know, towards the end, he's so bad that three Boston Braves pitchers. um, And I got to be honest when I, when I, three Boston Braves pitchers basically said, we're not going to pitch unless he's no longer in the uh, like, I'm not going to pitch if he's in the outfield, which, you know, there's a little part of me that it's easy to, to sort of take that story as Ruth was so old, like, but I gotta be honest, those three pitchers pitching for one of the worst teams in baseball can stick it in their ear too. <laughs> like you really, you really going to have that big of a problem with, Babe Ruth, like, you know, like, it's not like, hey, we're trying to win a pennant here. Like, I don't know. Like, again, yes, obviously, I understand the frustration, but like, who the hell were these guys? Like, you know what I mean? So um, he he really couldn't play the field. He couldn't run the bases. And, you know, remember, this is the 30s. So there's no uh there's no designated hitter there's not really a lot of defensive platooning and that sort of thing and they want him in the lineup every day for attendance so they want to at least 
you know, have the thought that he'll be in the lineup every day. So he's aged in dog years that forget about what he looked like in 1923 or 1927, even compared to the guy from the year before he's, he's aged as a player dramatically in, in that eight months since his last bat with the Yankees. So on May 12th, he goes to judge Fuchs. His average is 154. He's only got three home runs in 21 games and he wants to retire. But Fuchs insisted that Ruth go on the team's upcoming road trips to Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Philadelphia, all National League cities that are planning Babe Ruth days for Babe Ruth. And Fuchs makes a point here, which is actually a pretty good one, an interesting one. Ruth had never played in the National League. So he'd obviously he'd been to Philadelphia to play against the athletics. But as a major leaguer, he'd never played, I guess, other than uh 20 series 27 in the world series against Pittsburgh, but that was two games. Most fans in a lot of national league cities. And I guess, I mean, how much crossover was there not in those days? What were the sole national league cities? It was Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Were those the only two? Well, you had two in New York. You had one in Boston. You had one in Philly. You had one in St. Louis and you had one in Chicago. Yeah, you're right. So, okay. So those are the only two, but even only three so, in the American right. League, then, by the way, too, Detroit, Cleveland, and Washington. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, yeah, there weren't a lot of that whole time. There weren't a lot of crossover cities, but this road trip had two of the three in the National League. So he does decide to go and he has sort of this one last memorable day at Forbes Field uh, against the Pittsburgh Pirates where he hits three home runs, including a ball all the way out of Forbes field off of a guy named Guy Bush that they measure over 500 feet. And it's the longest home run ever hit at Forbes field. So a couple of things I didn't know about this one. I didn't know that this was actually his last. Um, I didn't know that they lost this game. He hit three home runs and they still lost 11 to seven to the pirates. How many um, RBIs did he have in those three home runs? I'm going to look that up. I believe he had, I believe he had roof drove in six of the Braves seven runs with his three blasts. Good. Um, so I, I didn't know that. And the other thing I didn't know, and I told you this as we were doing the research and, you know, shame on me because for all these years, you know, I talk a lot about movies, taking liberties and, you know, better movies than the John Goodman, Babe Ruth movie take liberties. I thought this was his last game. I did not know until I did the research for this, that he in fact played for uh, five more games after this. Now, when you say better movies than the John Goodman Babe Ruth movie, do you mean every other movie ever made? For the most part, yes. God, that movie is so horrible. I think I read somewhere that John Goodman was not happy with how it came out. Like he is, I think he really like studied Ruth and wanted it to be sort of more of a biopic. And when he realized he was just going to portray this sort of fat moron running around the bases like a five year old, I don't think he was thrilled with how it came well, out. But the, that is a and the funny thing terrible is- movie. I don't think we even knew at the time, though, because John Goodman was basically like the guy from Roseanne. John Goodman then went on and became like, I mean, he was then, but like became known as like this phenomenal actor for 20 more years. He was shortly after that in The Big Lebowski. He has he's still on a a really popular TV show now, The Righteous Gemstones. He's been in movies like he became this very distinguished actor. But at the time, it was like, oh, the TV dad from Roseanne is just going to play fat old Babe Ruth on 
some TV movie, but um, yeah. And, and honestly, even the Ken Burns baseball kind of alludes to that being his last game. Yeah, a little bit. They don't necessarily, they don't necessarily make clear that there was more and there was more that game takes place on May the 25th and Ruth, he keeps going. He plays a complete game on May 26th, a loss, a pinch hits on May 27th, a loss. Well, on the 26th, he pulls a muscle. So okay. he, he pulls a muscle playing the outfield uh, on May 26th. He pinch hit the following day. And then on the 27th, he started in left field. And that was the game that were you going to talk about what happened in that game? Go ahead. So and this I'm reading from a Sabre article. Uh, let's see. It was written by just so I can credit them. Thomas J. Brown, Jr. Um Ruth, uh, in that game, Ruth endured possibly the worst experience of his career. Every Reds batter purposely hit the ball to left field in the fifth inning. Ruth, hampered by his muscle strain, was unable to field the ball, and the Reds scored five runs. When the inning finally ended, Ruth went to the clubhouse, not the dugout, as fans heckled him. On the way, he picked up a small boy and hugged him before leaving the field. And that's a Sabre article, so I'm going to give it a little more credence than if I found it on somebody's blog. I agree. So, you know, you got a guy who three days earlier is penning like this final coda of like, well, he had one last great day. He hits three home runs, and now they're hitting the ball directly at him, and it's working to the point where he just goes into the clubhouse after the inning instead of going back into the dugout. And which game is that? That's against Cincinnati. That's the last game of the Cincinnati series on the 27th. Braves lose that one. Uh, 28th, uh, excuse me. Braves lose that one 13 to 4. That is their 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6th loss in a row. They actually win the next day. Uh, Ruth, uh, four, uh, four plate appearances, has a hit and two walks. So not. I don't think not- he had a. I think he had just two walks. They score a run, maybe. Is that what you're, you're looking right? At? I'm sorry. I was looking at it. Cra- I was looking at it uh, crooked a little bit. Yeah. Walks twice and scores a run. Because that's home run number 714 was the last hit of his career. So that brings us to May 30th. Braves at Phillies. Jim Biven starting for the Phillies. Ruth was penciled in as the starting left fielder. First, Browns game, out. first game of a Memorial Day doubleheader. Yep. First inning, he grounds out to Dolph Camilli at first. Took the field in the bottom of the first. Uh, a ball dropped in front of him when he couldn't run to catch it. Uh, then there was another fly ball to left, which he failed to catch. The ball rolled past him to the wall. Ruth finally caught up to the ball and threw it to the relay man. Uh, when he The relay man then threw it and got Lou Chioza out at the plate, trying to stretch it into an inside-the-park home run. So Ruth did get an assist. And again, as the Braves left the field after the third out, Ruth left through the left through the center field fence where the clubhouse was located, trotted off the field. 18,000 fans who had shown up gave him one last standing ovation. No one at the Baker Bowl suspected that Ruth would announce his retirement three days later. So Ruth plays in that day one inning. He grounds out to the first baseman. He, I don't know if there were officially errors, but he has two balls drop uh, in the outfield manages to get one in in time before it becomes an inside the park home run and 
sort of, I would say symbolically, but he did it a few days earlier too. Um, just leaves and uh, heads into the clubhouse and that's it for the playing career of Babe Ruth. So he, he does stick around for a few more days. He wants to go to New York to a party uh, to celebrate the maiden voyage of an ocean liner known as the Normandy. And that's Normandy with an I E N O R M A N D I E. Fuchs does not want him to go. And Ruth um, Fuchs is thinking, okay, well, I, I paid all this money for Babe Ruth and he has not saved my team financially in any way, shape or form. So Ruth uh, gets angry. He decides that he is instead of uh, he wants to go to this party. So he's just going to retire. He uh, later says that Fuchs is a double crosser. He would double cross a hot cross bun. And that is the end of the Major League Baseball career of the guy who I still consider the greatest of all time. Ruth's uh, departure does not uh, do much to improve the Braves. They ended up finishing with a 38 and 115 record. That is the worst record in Major League Baseball for almost three decades until a little team known as the 1962 New York Mets. By which point the Braves have moved to Milwaukee and would soon after that move again to uh, Atlanta. I thought interestingly, and I guess more interestingly, just based now on where I live in Connecticut, Ruth did tell Fuchs that he was willing to play in an exhibition game in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, because he'd been promised that he would play in that game. Fuchs was angry, refused to let Ruth play in the game. Ruth quit. Fuchs told him he was fired and he officially retires on June the 3rd, 1935, which I believe is where he gives that hot cross bun quote um for ruth the only other time he'll put on a major league uniform in an official capacity is 1938 with the brooklyn dodgers where he's the first base coach um again he's a glorified gate attraction this is before the dodgers in the 40s became you know the the brooklyn dodgers that that uh there's been a book or two written about um so he's basically there to take batting practice and, you know, encourage guys at first base. I don't think he's given any signs or anything like that. And then after that, you know, is, is pretty much out of baseball, uh, makes some PR appearances and things like that, but uh, never seriously is considered to be a manager. Um, we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and, you know, never, uh, Forever will be there's that brief two month stretch where he was a a Boston Brave uh, chasing after balls in left field. Sadly, a little bit of a quick aftermath on the Braves. They changed their name temporarily to the Boston Bees in 1936. I'm not exactly sure why they do that. If that's to sort of distance themselves from the the terribleness of the year before they 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 go back to being the Braves in 1941. McKenkey lasts for two more seasons as manager. They actually they have a winning season in 37 uh at 79 and 73, but by 38 he's gone and his replacement as manager is a gentleman who you've heard of, who I've heard of by the name of Casey Stengel in one of his National League managing stints before he ends up uh coming to the Yankees in late 1949. Most famous part about Casey Stengel's tenure in Boston, he is so disliked by the Boston writers that when he gets hit by a cab and has his leg broken, 
a writer suggests that the cab driver be named MVP of the Braves for the 1943 season. So uh, not a lot of love for Casey with the Boston Braves slash bees. And that's Ruth. Uh, and I guess next, uh, unless you had anything to add on Ruth, uh, look, what uh, else do you have to add you, on Ruth? It's not specifically about his last game, but it's sort of intrinsically twi- entwined in it. Should he have gotten a chance to be a major league manager somewhere? You know, I don't know because I don't know what it means. I've read somewhere sometime. I don't know if this is true. And I really, I don't, I don't think it is. Some people have postulated this and I haven't researched it, that he, if he were made a manager, had plans to immediately integrate whatever team he was managing. Now, that doesn't sound true. I've heard people like serious, like I've heard that on panels. That's not just something I've seen, you know, I don't know that that's true. Cause again, it's like, what about the owner? Like, wouldn't the owner have some say in that he's got to sign the players and play the salaries. So that's sort of been a theory that's been floated out there. The other thing that you hear out there is, well, he couldn't manage himself. How could he manage the team? I don't buy that. That I don't buy. I bought that. It was said. Oh yeah. No, I'm saying that I don't buy is a reason. I don't think Babe Ruth would have been a great manager. I think he probably would have lost interest in it pretty quickly. That's the reason I don't, but I don't buy the thing of like, well, he couldn't manage himself. There were plenty of guys back then who couldn't manage themselves and managed to do, you know, the, the quote that he couldn't manage himself. He managed to hit 714 home runs when the next closest guy had eight. I, you know, he, uh, I think he would. I don't think that would have necessarily been a problem. There have been managers who've been drunks, whatever else, in the last hundred years. I just, I don't think he would have been a great manager, but I don't think it's because of that. I would want to learn more about the question. I would specifically want to learn more about what what was out there for him. You know, mm-hmm. what was? Um, I'm sorry, I just had a sudden sort of burst of revelation that. There are a lot of parallels between this story and another one that we're going to get to probably in about 45 minutes. And that just kind of struck me mm. for a second. It, it didn't even, I don't know, it hadn't really occurred and to me. But we, uh, we can we can move on because of the time frame. But one thing that occurs to me, if Bill Veck had come along a little long, a little earlier, yeah. mm. you could have mm. seen that. You could have seen Bill Veck, the, the manager of the St. Louis Browns, George Herman Babe Ruth. Well, and that was the one thing I wanted to say is I do want, and Vec was all about integrating too. So even if the integration story was true, um, but I, I wonder how widely the net was cast. I mean, would he have been willing? I mean, I guess if he was willing to manage the Boston Braves, he would have been willing to manage anybody. But how long did he actually actively search for a managerial job? And also, my understanding from what and I've read this a long time ago, I didn't see it, you know, my recent research was that he was offered a triple A job and turned it down, which even in those days, most managers didn't go right into major league managing. So yeah. he, he could have, there were other things he could have done. So, and that's why I say, I don't think he was that serious about it. I think even if let's say the St. Louis Browns or the senators had hired him for any managed for a year, I think he would have been ah too many headaches and too many, you know, the, the modern ball player, like that kind of thing. And then he would have been gone, but um, you know, just an interesting thought exercise, but. All right. So next up, uh, we're going to fast forward uh, many, many years, almost 50 years. We're going to fast forward to December 11th in Jamaica, 
Muhammad Ali in his final heavyweight fight against Trevor Burbick. December 11th of what year? Because you said December 11th. December 11th, 1981. Okay. So I talked about how Ruth was depressing uh, or a little sad, I guess. This is the equivalent of somebody who is just as past their prime as Babe Ruth was in 1935, except he's getting punched in the head. I watched this whole fight in preparation for this. Um, so just for a moment, sort of the the boxing career of Muhammad Ali. And I, I Don't worry, I'm not going to literally get into the boxing career of Muhammad Ali. So 1967 is when he's... Uh, his last fight before he's, you know, exiled from boxing for refusing induction into the Vietnam War is March of 67 against Zora Foley or Foley. I don't know how they pronounce that. He's reinstated in 1970, has a couple of fights, sort of tune ups for the big Frazier fight, loses to Frazier the first time in the garden, fights a few more times, rematch with Frazier, ultimately beats Fra- He loses to Ken Norton. In 1973, for his second loss, beats Norton again. Frazier with the the second fight, the thrill in Manila, beats Foreman. Blah blah blah. So he's 49 and two after the thrill in Manila in October of 1975. Has a couple more fights. Fights Norton again. Fights Ernie Shavers in September 29th of 1977. Wins and goes to 55 and two. It is after the Ernie Shavers fight that his longtime uh, physician and corner man, Ferdy Pacheco, does a body uh, in September of 1977. Ferdy Pacheco, after the fight against Shavers, Pacheco performs a post fight battery of reflex tests. After Ali didn't perform at a level that would be requisite for being able to protect himself in the ring. An alarmed Pacheco recommends that Ali retire immediately from boxing. Ali refuses. And to Pacheco's credit, he says, from both a medical and an ethical perspective, I can't do it. Uh, The New York State Athletic Commission gave me a report that showed Ali's kidneys were falling apart. I wrote to Angelo Dundee, his wife, and to Ali himself. I got nothing back. That's when I decided enough is enough. They remained friends. He didn't, like, disown Ali. He just told them, you know... I can't do this anymore. Uh, I guess he'd been having his reservations about Ali continuing to fight since the thrill in Manila. Ali fights his next two fights. Sorry, go ahead. I just should should mention, by the way, this fight, it's not in the it's not in Jamaica. It's in the Bahamas. It's known as yep. the drama in Bahama. And I apologize, but you'll, you'll get to that, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm going to go. So he fights two more times. He fights Leon Spinks his next two fights after the Shavers fights. He loses by a split decision to Spinks. Um, in February of 78, then he beats Spinks by unanimous decision in September of 78. Okay. You know, he's clearly fought for a little too long there, but, you know, those are both reasonable fights. Ali then doesn't fight for two more years. The In October 2nd of 1980, uh, he fights Larry Holmes, who's taken over the heavyweight boxing division. One of the early 30 for 30s is on this fight. Um, it's excellent. Uh, they had sort of what you would consider now when they do like the 24-7 coverage of, of the fighters' camps and stuff. They do this for this fight. It's alarming because Ali is very clearly, this is before even the Holmes fight, is very clearly 
suffering from some sort of brain damage or effects of obviously he would be ultimately diagnosed with Parkinson's, whether it's early, whether it's early symptoms of Parkinson's or something else, he clearly is to use the, the sort of insensitive parlance. He's at the very least punch drunk and he, you know, he, he can't, he has a hard time forming words. He has a hard time being understood. He fights Holmes He's already experiencing tingling in his hands and slurred speech. Holmes, who had gotten a lot of guff for sort of taking over the division from the likes of Ali and Frazier and at the time Foreman, keeps waiting on the referee to stop the fight. And the referee won't stop the fight. And Holmes, Ali, had sort of been his hero when he was growing up, That's, right? Yes. And this, again, I don't want to, this is about the next one. So, but. Holmes is basically looking at the ref, like stop the fight and the ref out of loyalty to Ali or whatever, just lets Holmes keep beating Ali up. And Holmes took a lot of flack for that. In the end of that 30 for 30, he talks about how people come up to him and say, I'll never forgive you for what you did to Muhammad Ali. And he's like, what was I supposed to do? Like the, the guy wouldn't stop the fight. Like, so that happens. Everybody knows. Okay. You know, Ali, uh, Al- Holmes wins the fight. You know, I believe the ref stops the fight. Um, everybody goes, what a sad end to Muhammad Ali's career. He, you know, uh, stayed too long and, and all of this. And, you know, obviously he'll never step back in the ring again, which brings us to this, which is what you called. It's called drama in the Bahamas or drama in Bahama. Uh, Muhammad Ali versus let me just add a couple of things first of all this is over a year after his last fight it takes him a while to get cleared to fight again he also had failed a drug test for painkillers and antidepressants in the immediate aftermath of the Holmes fight he claims that he didn't take those drugs until after the fight but nonetheless there's questions about his health there's questions about his licensing and you know the failure of this drug test so it takes over a year until he's able to get this fight set up against Burbick. He's hoping that, and this is, it's hard with Ali because you don't know whether he actually believes these things or whether he just says these things, but he actually thinks that if he wins this fight, he might have a title bid for the WBA championship against Mike Weaver is the guy's name who holds that belt at the time. And this whole thing is just a disaster. And and I have some things I want to point out from the sort of the, the lead up to this fight in the Bahamas, but I'll, I'll turn it back over to you before that. Yeah. So only a couple of things I wanted to say on it. Um, the reason it's in the Bahamas is not, be- it's not like when the thrill in Manila, because uh, Ferdinand Marcos offered them a lot of money to come and, and basically sports wash his brutal regime. It wasn't because like when they did it in Zaire for him and um, him and Foreman, the reason this fight was in the Bahamas is it was the only place Muhammad Ali had a chance of being allowed to fight. Every state board had denied him a license. Uh, I'm assuming some more reputable foreign countries from a sports standpoint wouldn't allow him the box. That's why this fight was in Nassau, Bahamas. So a couple of the things I'm going to cite Rick right now are from Wikipedia, but they're, they seem to be sourced from a, a book about Ali and I'll give you the mm-hmm. book's name. 
and I have another book of Ali that I'm holding in my hand, a book called Muhammad Ali, the glory years by Felix Dennis and Don Atio, A-T-Y-E-O. So I'm assuming this is legit. First of all, Ali claims before the fight that he's been declared fit by quote, even the best white doctors. I don't know exactly what he was getting that there, but that's what he says. Uh, The promoter of the fight was James Cornelius, a convicted felon with links to the nation of Islam. However, a problem arose since Don King had signed Trevor Burbick up for a three fight deal. When King arrived in Nassau to demand his share of the profits from the fight, he was greeted by two friends of Cornelius who administered a beating to Don King. Probably not the first or the last beating that Don King receives as a result of his. um, And we should point out that there's differing there's differing points of view of that story. Um but long story short, they got into a brawl. And I guess Don Cornelius is the problem is you go like, well, this guy Don Cornelius doesn't seem real reputable. And neither does Don King. So the fact that two guys who thought they had a claim to the promotion of this fight ended up ended up getting into essentially an assault situation should show you sort of the um we've come a long way from March of 71 at the garden with Howard Cosell and yeah, exactly. So, and it's kind of, we talked about this way back in one of our first few episodes, we did a really good fun, probably still one of the, the episodes every once in a while when I'm out walking the dog or something like that. And I want to listen to one of our old episodes for a few minutes, our two parter on the heavyweight championship, uh, boxing heavyweight championships is one of the ones I pull up the most often, so if you want more about Ali's career and all this stuff and the, the sort of the fact that Ali sort of comes up in the um, sort of the black and white, you know, fights on broadcast TV club era all the way up through the 70s and the super fights and then ends in the early 80s with HBO and uh, sketchy. Uh, there have always been sketchy promoters, but, you know, Don King and fights in foreign countries and all that type of thing. There's some interesting guys on the undercard here. Ernie Shavers, uh, the aforementioned Ernie Shavers fights on this card. Uh, Thomas the Hitman Hearns, who just uh, three months earlier had had uh, his uh, his first fight with Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, one of, uh, you know, and that ends up being, a, I guess they don't fight again for like eight years, but it's a, you know, a famous fight between uh, between Hagler and Leonard. Uh, in September of 81, where uh, Leonard wins and uh, I think I sort of unifies the welterweight titles. He's on the card. So there are some attractions on this whole thing other than the Ali Burbick fight, but uh, none of it goes particularly well. Uh, there's an author who some folks might have heard of by uh, Jonathan, by the name of Jonathan Eig, who's written a few good sports books. He wrote a really good book on... Um, Jackie Robinson's first season that I used in our 47 World Series episode. He he wrote a really good Lou Gehrig biography a bunch of years back, and he's also written an Ali biography. And this is his description of this um, of this fight. The fight started late because organizers couldn't find keys to unlock the gates surrounding the baseball field where the arena had been built. Ali entered the ring slowly and somberly. The one of the promoters, a guy by the name of Jace, had forgotten to purchase boxing gloves for the event, which meant all the fighters on the card that night had to share the same two pairs. By the time of the main event, the gloves were heavy with sweat. Cornelius, the guy whose friends beat up Don King, 
had also failed to arrange for a proper bell at ringside, so the timekeeper struck a cowbell with a hammer to signal the start of Muhammad Ali's final fight. Ali, and by the way, you can you can tell that in the fight. It's not oh, like, really. Oh, you, you can tell it's a cowbell. Like it, <laughs> it does sound like a boxing ring bell. Ali weighed 236 pounds, almost 24, 20 more pounds than he had weighed against Holmes. He had promised to dance for 10 rounds, but he abandoned the notion immediately and showed no, almost no fancy footwork. Ali actually, from what I read and what I studied, he actually seems to fight a little better in this fight, maybe than in the Holmes fight, although that's that's not a not a high bar to jump. Yeah, so a couple other things that I have a quote here. Eddie Futch, who is most famous in Muhammad Ali's career for being Joe Frazier's corner man and the one who stopped the thrill in Manila before the 15th round when he realized that Joe Frazier essentially couldn't see, uh, even though he might have been winning the fight. Um, he said, this is... the." He said, this is the worst I've ever been in, said the 70-year-old boxing veteran. They were consistent. They did everything wrong all the way through. And then Greg Page said, I've never seen a promotion this bad. Whoever's putting this show on is crazy. Um, so you mentioned one thing I thought that was interesting, too, is, you know, this is Muhammad Ali. The fights on cable television in 1981, which means it's available to about 3 million Americans, Available, not watched by 3 million Americans, available and on closed circuit, which again, this is Muhammad Ali. You know, this is the era of fights on HBO or AB, you know, and, and just exiting the era of fights on ABC and, you know, network television. And Muhammad Ali's last fight is on 1981 era cable television. Um, so I have a couple of notes from the fight. Um, and you said he looks a little, he, the reason he holds his own a little bit better in this fight is because Trevor Burbick stinks. Trevor Burbick is not a good fighter. You know, Larry Holmes was the heavyweight champion of the world, the best heavyweight boxer in the world. I found a quote that basically said like Trevor Burbick is clearly a guy who, let me see if I can find the exact quote, but, um, this is from sports writer, Hugh McElvaney said, Burbick is the kind of lumbering, slow-armed swinger Ali would have first embarrassed and then demolished in his dazzling prime. To see Ali lose to such a moderate fighter in such a grubby context was like ride it, watching a king riding into permanent exile on the back of a garbage truck. The one blessing was that he was steadily exhausted rather than violently hurt by the experience. So... I'll just give you a couple of notes because I took notes the whole fight, but I'm not going to say like, oh, and in the third round, whatever. At the beginning of the fight, the color announcers, and these are the color commentators for the fight they're about to call, was talking about the, the crowd. And he said, they know deep down in their hearts that Ali shouldn't be in there. By the third round, he's he's holding. He's not, you know, Burbick is no great shakes. Um, in the fourth round, one of the announcers says, I'm very concerned, but they're still trying to, talk themselves into it like oh ali's holding his own even though it's clear by the the fifth or sixth round that he may be able to finish the fight he's not going to mount any serious kind of a uh a threat i wrote down that in the sixth round they showed john travolta in the crowd going between the ninth and the tenth round the announcers say win or lose win lose or draw here i hope he doesn't fight again 
So they know what they're seeing there. And like I said, this isn't as Jeez. violently this isn't as violently humiliating as the Burbick or as the Holmes fight, but he just he's in there with a boxer of very moderate means in the equivalent of boxing Siberia. You know, the, the, the Bahamas was not a boxing hotbed for fights of this magnitude. He loses by unanimous decision. Um, you know, it's not a particularly close unanimous decision. The one thing I did think was interesting was his previous fight was judged on the 10 point must system. And this fight wasn't, I thought once they switched over to the 10 point must system, they stayed with the 10 point must system, but they, uh, they obviously didn't hear. So long story short, Ali is never a serious threat to win this fight. Burbick is never a serious threat to, you know, to humiliate him or brutalize him the way Muhammad Ali or the way uh, Larry Holmes did. But, He's clearly, you know, able to he Muhammad Ali is posing no threat to Trevor Burbick in this fight. After the fight, Ali says, I think I'm finished. And this is from Sports Illustrated. I think I'm finished. I know it's the end. I'm not crazy. After Holmes, I had excuses. I was too light. Didn't breathe right. No excuses this time. He says, I'm happy. I'm still pretty. I could have a black eye, broken teeth, split lips. I think I came out all right for an old man. I didn't get knocked out, didn't get knocked down. I lost, but I lost honorably. Now, obviously, in later years, the impacts of probably these fights more than his whole career, but obviously the longer he held on, the more punishment he took. It becomes clear that Muhammad Ali is is not okay. Um and that 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 sticks with him for the rest of his life until he passes away in 2016. So, yeah, another sort of uh, ignominious, ignominious end to a, a great career. And um, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to be funny by this, but so about three years later, three and a half years after this, he's um, he's advertised as the guest referee for the main event of the first WrestleMania. And throughout the entire promotion of this in February and March of 1985, he's advertised that he's going to be the guest referee of the fight. Uh, the main event's a tag team match with Hulk Hogan and, and Mr. T against two wrestlers, Roddy Piper and Paul Wonderful, or Paul Orndorff. Um, that night, suddenly he's the referee on the outside of the ring. And, you know, for years, I guess people didn't really think too much about it. And what happened that night was they were going over some things with him, and one of the WWF like officials kind of said, this guy can't do this. Like this guy's not able to, to handle what we need him to do here tonight. So they, they were like, okay, just stand on the outside. And when we tell you to do something, do it. Um, you know, and that was just three years after his last fight. So I was young enough, you know, I was born in 1986. I don't remember Muhammad Ali other than, what he was in the 1990s and beyond, which was, you know, early on, you could kind of make out some things he would say, although he wouldn't talk too much, but you know, the, the shaking and the, you know, the sort of look on his face and, and obviously that got worse as years went on. But, um, the fact that people who knew him at the time were saying that he shouldn't be in the ring because of this stuff, it's hard to then go, oh, it had nothing to do with his boxing career. Yeah. So so I didn't realize that they they wanted Ali to be the 
they thought Ali was going to be the in-ring, in-ring, in-ring ref right up until that day. If you watch, and again, the normal caveat with professional wrestling is a lot of these things are, are, are stories, but every commercial for that is special referee Muhammad Ali. And then according to the story and, you know, some, the guy who ended up being the referee for the fight that night, Pat Patterson, that day was going over some things with him. And he, he just was like, this guy's not getting it. Like, we can't do this. He's, we've advertised him. We have to use him, but he can't do the things we need him to do there. Not that he had to like fight anybody, but you know, to remember certain things at certain times and things. And they just, you know, and that was before it was widely known that he, he still physically passed for, you know, for a guy in relatively good shape, but you know, it had obviously compounded in the, in those few years since his last fight. So, you know, you can talk about, and we'll move on in a second. I know, but, you could talk about Babe Ruth playing too long and, and not being able to field or, um, you know, Michael Jordan not being Michael Jordan when he came back. The, the reality of the fact is with boxing, you get punched in the head. And when you're out there past when you should be out there, it's a major, major problem. Before we go, we should just sort of give a quick uh, sort of the, a coda on the story of Trevor Burbick. Career lasts a little while longer. He actually goes on to win the WBC title before losing it to Mike Tyson. He is one of the he's the last guy to fight Ali, and he's one of the first guys to fight Tyson, or at least one of the first to fight Tyson on a on a major stage. I think that I think that Burbick and Holmes are the only two guys who fight both Ali and Tyson. I might be missing one. I'm I'm no expert, but I think those are the two that immediately come to mind. I don't know if Tyson fought Larry Holmes. No, he did. 88. Uh, I just looked it up. Oh, did he? Okay. Um, and they each fought a Sphinx, but a different Sphinx. So I should I should point that out that um so I watched that whole fight, the fight we just talked about, and then like I'm getting ready to go to bed a couple last week when I'm doing the research on this, and I was like, you know what? This was annoying to me watching Trevor Burbick like for 10 rounds, like outbox Muhammad Ali. I was like, for a minute, I'm just gonna watch the other fight for a second. And it goes two rounds, but in that second round. Ali or not Ali Tyson has Burbick on the ground very quick. Um, and that's the end of the fight. And Ali, I keep saying Ali Tyson takes the heavyweight championship. So, um, you know, obviously he was fighting a prime Mike Tyson, but just sort of underscores that Trevor Burbick at no point was any kind of great fighter to hold the, the guys who hold victories against Muhammad Ali are Ken Norton, Leon Spinks, Joe Frazier, Larry Holmes and then Trevor Burbick. And that's kind of frustrating. All right. So uh, we're up to, we're up to number three here. Uh, We're going to move on to April 18th, 1997 Madison square garden, Pittsburgh penguins against the New York Rangers. Wayne Gretzky's final game uh, in the national hockey league. And of the five, sort of, like you said, this is probably kind of the best, story now the rangers are out of it they're out of the playoffs uh gretzky well it had widely been believed this was going to be his last game he doesn't announce it until two or three days earlier uh so they they plan this ceremony for him and some of his former teammates or, or former rivals including mario lemieux who is a member of the pittsburgh penguins but i believe is injured he does not play in the game um 
Lemieux kind of had weird things where he he had a cancer thing and then he was injured and then he was retired, then he unretired. So Lemieux was sort of back and forth, you know, where he played some years and didn't play some years for for a while in the later part of his career. Um, But Lemieux is there. Mark Messier is there as part of this ceremony for Gretzky's final game. The Gretzky, just to give you sort of the, the quick version of Gretzky's career, starts with the... Uh, actually starts in the WHA, the World Hockey Association. Uh, first team he plays on is the Indianapolis Racers, who I think I mentioned in it, one of our Mount Rushmore episodes. He plays with them for about, uh, I think it's about eight games, then goes to Edmonton and plays, you know, plays with Edmonton, wins all of those Stanley Cups in the mid 80s with um, with Messier, among others, gets traded to the Kings. That's another 30 for 30, another early 30 for 30. So then, the second one. Yeah, what's that called? The Great Trade Robbery or something like that? Yeah, I forget what it's, but it's something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, so then he he ends up uh, at sort of a mid-season trade to the St. Louis Blues in 96. Then he becomes a free agent, and he signs with the Rangers. And in addition to it being a big deal in this 96 offseason that the greatest of all time is signed with you know the, the biggest stage in sports in New York City, He's also reuniting with Mark Messier. Rangers had won the cup a couple of years earlier, hadn't made it back. And then this was supposed to be sort of the. The new golden age of the Rangers with these two great players, Messier and, of course, Gretzky reuniting to try and win another cup for the Rangers. They they'd won how many? What, four, I think, in Edmonton. And I had Messier had won a fifth in Edmonton after Gretzky left and then another one with the Rangers, but then it only lasts one season because Messier has a contract dispute in the 97 off season. He goes to where is, where does he end up? I want to say Vancouver. Um, he goes to Vancouver and I believe is still with Vancouver in the 98, 98 season, but he comes back and, you know, for the pregame ceremony and, honors uh wayne gretzky let me look here uh yeah he's with vancouver and then ironically plays one more year with vancouver before he re-signs with the rangers and spends the last four seasons of his career with the rangers so he does come back but they bring you know they bring lemieux back they bring uh messier back uh gretzky's whole family is there i read this a long time ago dave checkets then the president of medicine square garden drives onto the ice with a brand new car for Gretzky and Gretzky's father is in the passenger seat. And it was often suspected that Chekets did that because he knew that the only way that he wouldn't get booed by the Madison square garden crowd was if he, if he was uh, riding up with Wayne Gretzky's father, incidentally, a lot of the reasons why check was going to get booed didn't have anything to do with the Rangers. It was because of some of the, the palace drama with the Knicks in the spring of 1999 with Van Gundy and Ernie Grunfeld being fired and check flirting with Phil Jackson, all that stuff. So some Knicks drama makes its way into the Gretzky retirement uh, ceremony gets a pregame message, uh, you know, on the big screen from Gordy Howe, who'd been his childhood idol. He's awarded the, uh, the lady Bing's trophy for sportsmanship right prior to that game and he um i don't believe he'd ever won that award in his time in the nhl the commissioner 
Gary Bettman, who's still the commissioner to this day, is um, announces, and this is the 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 baseball had done this with Jackie Robinson in a different context a couple of years earlier. Bettman announces that no NHL player will ever wear number ninety nine after Wayne Gretzky. Not that a lot had in the first place, if we're being completely honest, but they they do this nice ceremony. We'll get to the game in a minute, but it's just kind of a nice ceremony and a nice day and a, a fitting exit for once for one of these guys. Yeah. So going back to 1996, um, he had been with St. Louis and the thought was he was going to sign. He was, you know, that he had gotten an offer from the blues. He was a mid season replacement for them. They thought they had a chance to make a run to the Stanley cup. I think they got eliminated in the second round. Um, the coach of the Blues by then is the former Rangers coach, Mike Keenan, who Gretzky had never gotten along with. Um, Keenan had been the coach of the Canadian team, the Team Canada, like Olympic team, national team, and then Gretzky and him had never gotten along. Keenan, for some reason, thought it was a good idea, even in 1996, to call out Gretzky, you know, as if he was just any other player, which Gretzky didn't take kindly to. So he left some money on the table to sign with the Rangers. In addition to reuniting with Messier, he was reuniting with Luke Robitaille, who was one of his key teammates during his Kings tenure. Yeah. Um, obviously, the team wasn't as successful when he was with the Kings. They did get to a Stanley Cup Finals in 1993 uh, and lost to the Montreal Canadiens. Um, so he signs with the Rangers, like we talked about. 97, they get to the Conference Finals. They lose in five games to the Flyers. 98-99 is a very down year for Gretzky. He's he's playing pretty much every game. He's only got seven goals. So I think it said it's the first time in his career where he's averaging less than a point a game or close to the first time, first time in a very long time in his career. And all year, there's kind of this thing of like, he's going to retire, he's going to retire, he's going to retire, but he won't confirm the rumors. They play game 81 of the year, which is the last game he's going to play in Canada. And then he announces, yes, um, you know, now who knows when he made up his mind, but he announces before that game that, yes, this will be my last game. Um, I am going to retire after the Penguin game. Interesting thing. I thought he he talks about how he drove to the game with his dad uh, and his dad was kind of telling him, hey, you know, you still might have some left in you, that kind of thing. And he talked about how it was a nice um sort of button to when you're younger and your father drives you to your, you know, youth hockey games or youth, mm-hmm. whatever game. Yeah. And uh, so he was kind of appreciative of that and, and sort of um, thinking of that. And, and, you know, his dad was kind of trying to tell him that, you know, you might have some more left in you. And he, he decided that, no, no, I'm, I'm done. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting and I feel like two years, two plus years later, this wouldn't fly, but before the game, so they sang both national anthems, which is a little weird because it was two American teams playing. But since Wayne Gretzky is Canadian, they played the Canadian national anthem. Both national anthems were altered to include references to Wayne Gretzky. I saw that too. <laughs> Brian Adams ad libbed in when he sang Oh Canada, we're going to miss you. In place of the lyrics, Oh Canada, we stand on guard for thee, he sang, We're going to miss you, Wayne Gretzky. And then the Star Spangled Banner, 
which was sung by John Amarante, was altered to include the words in the land of Wayne Gretzky, um, which I just is hard to imagine. I guess in a pre 9-11 world, people were a little more lax with that. I have a feeling if that happened now, it would be a problem. Like Steven Tyler did that with the home of the Indianapolis 500. And I think he had to apologize or something like that. Like, yeah, was that was that post 9-11? I don't remember. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. I feel like it was, but. Well, also not to split hairs, but the Gretzky thing at least was a tribute. Steven Tyler just sounded like an idiot. Just saying home of the Indianapolis 500. Like, OK, oh. so it was it was May of 01. So, OK. All right. Um. But uh, yeah, so I don't know how much you wanted to talk about in the game. Um, he... Yeah, there's... go ahead. There's not much there. The, the one thing that is interesting is that the Rangers wear their blue jerseys, which they never would do on at home. But they they do Back it. As then, sort of, yeah, do it as sort of a special tribute. Uh, the, the jersey that uh, Gretzky wears ends up selling for seven hundred fifteen thousand dollars at auction uh, many years. Later, I, I watched the pregame ceremony. Messier by far gets the loudest ovation in the garden of anybody, which is not surprising. The Rangers lose. I believe it's two to one. Gretzky assists in overtime. in overtime. Gretzky assists Brian Leach on the Rangers only goal. And he he goes out on top. Now, you know, he's it's not his city. And that's sort of a theme here, you know. Ruth in Boston, Jordan in Washington, Brady in Tampa. None of these players go out in the place where they or with the team that they made their biggest contributions to the sport. Gretzky, at least, is able to do it. At the end of a season in a famous arena with an organization that's got a lot of history of its own. So if you have to go out in this way sort of at the end of a losing season, not going to the playoffs, not in your original home, either of your original homes for Gretzky, Edmonton, or Los Angeles. This is not a bad way to do it, all things considered. No, and especially compared to the, the other guys we're talking about, because this is an inter- this is an interesting bookend that I because I, I researched this in a little bit of a different order than we're doing it. The first two guys went out uh way past their primes but it was mostly because their physical gifts abandoned them. And there was some ego involved in it too, but it was, you know, their physical, you know, their bodies gave out on them. The next two guys we're going to talk about, I think bought into their own hype a little bit too much, even though there was quite a bit of hype that should have been bought into, but they just, I think their egos basically swallowed any reasonableness, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, a couple of things on Gretzky I wanted to mention. There's a clip from Conan, from him on Conan O'Brien a few years ago. And I'm a little leery of stories that come out years after the fact, because who knows if they're true. But he tells an anecdote about, he says, I was playing my last year and people I was playing against before they would hit me, they would scream my name and say, hey, heads up or Wayne, get out of the way or here we are. And then he knew it was time to retire because the players especially the younger ones had such reverence for him that they didn't want to clock him when he wasn't looking or wasn't paying attention. Um, The other thing I like about this story is after the game, the Rangers lose in overtime, you know, the Yager scores the goal. Um, Gretzky skates around a little bit, goes into the locker room, takes the skates off, but goes to the post game conference still in his uniform. 
I was going to mention that. Uh, and and the quote is probably subconsciously, I don't want to take it off. Uh, I'm not going to pull it on ever again. It's hard. It's hard to take it off right now. I have to be honest with you. I don't want to take it off. So just you're right. Of the five of these we're going to talk about, this is the one that is the closest to going out on your own terms. Coaches for four years with the Phoenix Coyotes. He's the only one of these guys. I guess Brady could still do something. The only one of these guys who actually gets into coaching after his career is over. Doesn't do well. I think they missed the playoffs all four years that he's the coach. And recently he's showed up as a studio analyst on TNT games uh, for now that TNT has the NHL back. And it's always funny because it's like, and I'm not, again, I'm not a devoted hockey watcher, but you flip by a game or you turn on a playoff game. And there's three or four guys doing a studio show. And one of them is Wayne Gretzky. It's just kind of, it's neat to see because it's, you don't, you know, this is one of the four or five greatest players, figures in the history of North American sports, just seeing him on a studio show. It's nice that we're able to sort of see him still t- almost 25 years later in that context. Yeah. And his, his time as a uh, coach and then as an executive with that Arizona franchise did not, uh, go very well but he um he got out of that i don't believe he's got anything to do with that team anymore um he because he was an executive when he named himself the coach yeah Yeah, so he's been gone he's been gone a a long time he took on a different role with edmonton for about five years which is now also over since he left Mm -hmm. phoenix yeah um so yeah he uh you know from a playing career obviously it wasn't the gretzky that people remember from edmonton or even la but you know, didn't humiliate himself by any means and, um, you know, seemed to go as gracefully as, as you can as, as one of the best athletes in, uh, in history and, you know, pretty consensus wise, the best player in the history of your sport. All right. So next up is Michael Jordan. And this is sort of fitting because not to keep um, repeating myself that I, you know, growing up was not much of a hockey fan, but, you know, we grew up in the nineties and those were the two guys. Those were the indisputable greatest ever in their sports, Gretzky and Jordan. Gretzky had done most of his winning, had done all of his winning by the nineties. Jordan just started winning in the nineties and Gretzky obviously had a longer career. He started with with Edmonton, or I guess technically with Indiana in in the early 80s, but they were very much contemporaries. They were kind of seen as, you know, both were marketed very similarly in that these are the greatest players of all time in their respective sports. And, you know, they both went out you know, around the same time period that if Jordan hadn't come back and played in Washington, they would have gone out and very close to the same time period. But I think as befits Jordan's ego, it was never going to be, it was never going to be as smooth as it was for Wayne Gretzky. And I just finished reading about a month ago, Roland uh, Lazenby's great biography of Michael Jordan. Jordan retires from the bulls in 98. He sort of kicks around for a year or two. And then I believe it's prior to the 2000, 2001 season becomes uh, the basically the team president of the Washington Wizards and Wizards had not been good. They changed their name 
from uh from the wizards from the bullets to the wizards uh sometime in the mid 90s they had moved from uh Maryland to suburban DC to downtown Chinatown in DC. And they're owned by a, a guy by the name of Abe Pollen. And Pollen is a very civic minded guy, tries to do the right thing for the city, charitable. He he actually is the one who, not wanting to promote violence as he sees it, uh, changes the name of the team from the Bullets, even though that had been their name during their, their championship years in the 70s. And he hires Jordan. At, and as soon as Jordan comes in as as an executive, uh, it's it's not a good fit. Jordan wants to be in Washington as little as possible. He doesn't want to do anything to market the team in any way. He just wants to be a behind the scenes guy. And he brings in some of his own people who alienate a lot of the Wizards people who have been there a long time. And right about the summer of 2001, Jordan decides that maybe the best thing he can do for his team is to put the uniform back on and play and sort of teach these young guys as a player for two years so that they learn. And then as his belief goes after those two years, retire from the game for good and go back up into the front office. But his approach, both to his front office duties and to his playing duties is only bound to alienate people. And by the 2002-2003 season, Pollen has basically made the decision, even though it's not been made public yet, he's made the decision that he's not going to bring Michael Jordan back after Jordan retires as a player. So Jordan is an executive, um, is most famous for using the number one pick in the NBA draft in 2001 on Kwame Brown for reference, the next couple of picks, Tyson Chandler, who was a perennial all-star Pau Gasol, who's a hall of famer. Um, really anybody in the top 10 of this draft would have been better than Kwame Brown. Joe Johnson's also in that draft. Um, Tony Parker, who obviously goes on to be a hall of famer, but so that's sort of the, the, legacy of him as executive of the wizards um it's also interesting to point out that this is now the second time he's come out of retirement obviously a little different in 95 but you know he's he's retired twice now and come back both times that's right the first year they're decent they plays in every game he, he plays in every game he is in the running for MVP, at least for a little while. And they finish at 37 and 45. But, you know, it's the NBA players. You know, the, the 16 teams make the NBA finals or I'm sorry, make the NBA playoffs. So they are in playoff contention for a decent chunk of the 2001, 2002 Season and Jordan puts up, you know, at, at uh, he is 38 years of age. Um, and no, actually, the first year he doesn't play in every game. That, first, that's I was trying first, to correct myself. Yeah, he, he, he missed, he got hurt, he hurt his knee uh, about three quarters of the way through the season. 
And that was the year that he'd really been sort of having an MVP season. He ends up playing a lot more minutes per game. His first year, he plays almost 35 minutes. His second year, he plays 37 minutes a game, which is not what anybody expected it to be. But Doug Collins, who Jordan brings in as the coach, first of all, Jordan's in a lot of ways still his boss because Jordan's going back up to the front office or so the theory has it as soon as his playing time is over. Second of all, you know, he's Michael Jordan. So Collins is reluctant to push back. Jordan sort of ends up taking over the team. They missed the playoffs in 2000 uh, in the 01 02 season. And then Jordan decides that he's going to remake the team a little bit. And the biggest thing he does is he trades Richard Hamilton, who had later goes on to be a, a really good player with the, with the Pistons. He trades Hamilton to the Detroit Pistons for Jerry Stackhouse. And the big thing that Stackhouse had was that like Jordan Stackhouse was uh, a North Carolina alum. And so he brings back Charles Oakley who had been his rival with the Knicks, but before that had been his enforcer with the bull. So it's a different team that he's trying to build. And you can tell he's trying to make it more of a little bit of a win now type of team. They finish uh, eventually. With they, the, they did. They did not No, but they finished with the same <laughs> exact record, 37 and 45. And as the season is ending, Jordan is preparing to go back into the front office uh, one guy says that uh, whatever trust he once had in his uh, in his teammates, he no longer has. And Pollins decided that he's really going to stick it to Jordan. And this is where there's kind of some parallels with Babe Ruth and Judge Fuchs. Jerry Krause, who had worked for Abe Pollin with the Bullets many years earlier before going on to be the GM of the Bulls in the 90s and had never really gotten along with Jordan for for a variety of reasons, says to Pollen on the phone, he says, I'm going to F that friend of yours. He's thinking he's effing me. You watch. He doesn't know. And then shortly thereafter, a, a reporter for The New York Times, a basketball reporter, gets a um gets a gets a call from a, a source who says that Pollen is planning to cut Jordan loose at the end of the season. I don't know if Jordan fully knows this. I don't think he does by the time it gets to his last game in Philly, but it's clear that his ego has kind of gotten in the way. And even though they're, they're a lot better than they were the season before he started playing, this team has not, done what everybody was hoping they would do he's alienated some of his teammates he's alienated the front office the Kwame Brown pick is a disaster and he also essentially cut any chance of that being a success off when he came out of retirement the Kwame Brown thing yeah I mean it wasn't going to be a success either way but he essentially neutered any chance that that was going to be a, a positive development by coming back and assuming control again and he treats Kwame Brown horribly in practice name calling and yelling and screaming at him and I think even to this day Brown has always sort of said that you know he Jordan I don't want to say ruined him but he wonders what his career had been like, if it would have been like if he hadn't had to endure that abuse from Jordan in his first 
couple of years. So once they've been eliminated from playoff contention, Stackhouse is injured uh, late in the season, can't play late in the season as they're trying to push for the playoffs. And they end up being eliminated with, I think, about five or six games to go. And then it's just a question of playing out the string. And that is um, that is what they're doing for the last several uh, several games of the 0203 NBA season. So he he gets a little bit of a farewell tour because everybody assumes he's gone. He gets a long ovation in Chicago, which is last time playing there. That's when the Heat retire his jersey, which is dumb because he never actually played for the Heat. So it really was silly that they did that. Um, and do you think if they had known that the probably the second greatest player of all time was going to join their team and want to wear number 23 and not be able to <laughs> because they yeah, retired it for a guy who never set foot on the court? It's interesting because he might have switched to six anyway, but that's a story for another another time. But um, and so don't they don't they have Dan Marino's number tired retired too? I think which the problem is, oh, oops, you actually became a really successful franchise and you didn't need to do that because you could have retired numbers of guys who played for you and you'd have enough there. Um, yeah, it's kind of like Bond yeah. and Wade and, you know, Gosh, yeah. Well, and who's been on the, I think Donis Haslam been on the team for like 28 years. Wasn't he on the team with Ronnie Cycli? <laughs> I don't know about that far back, but he's, he was on, he's been on the team since the 05, 06 team that won the championship. And I think he was still on the roster this past year. I, I don't know what his plan is for this season. Oh. He may have retired, but. Um, so I want to point out, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. The, so the, the, they play the Sixers in the last game of the year, the Sixers, um, Defend or the you know the Sixers are still in the AI era. They're a couple of years off of finals appearance. This Wizards roster this night, there are some guys in. It's just a very interesting point in time, and some guys from Jordan's past that are in this on this roster. You mentioned Jerry Stackhouse is on the team. Brian Russell is on the team. The Brian Russell of uh, what was thought to be Michael Jordan's last game in 1998 of the famous whether you want to call it a push off correctly or whether you want to say you know Russell he faked out or whatever Brian Russell is on the team he does not play in this game um Oakley like you mentioned is on the team do you know who else so the starting lineup Kwame Brown who he drafted Teron Liu, who went on to have a pretty solid career Larry Hughes Jordan do you know who the fifth starter on this team that night was it was Leitner, wasn't it? A teammate of Michael Jordan's on the dream team, Christian Leitner. So just, just some interesting cross-section of folks on this team for the Wizards that night. I remember this was actually the only time I ever saw Jordan play live was uh, in this season. I saw them play. I don't remember. Who did I see them play against? I think it was sort of the Nets, right? No, no, no. This was in D.C. I um, my friend Dan had was able to get tickets and I I flew down from college from Boston and stayed the weekend with him. Oh, that's right. You were in college. I was in high school. I'm like, what? And then I realized, yeah, you were in college. I was in high school. So and ahead. I remember noticing that the entire starting lineup for the Bulls had all gone to ACC schools. And I think it was Juan Dixon <laughs> from Maryland, Jordan at shooting guard. And then I think the starting the front three were Leitner, Brendan Haywood, who um, they drafted. Uh, the, who I actually don't think they drafted him. I think he came over. Um, did, was he drafted by the Wizards? Um, 
Yeah, he was drafted by the Wizards. So Brendan Haywood in his second year, who'd been the center at Carolina, and then um and then Stackhouse also from UNC. So Jordan's uh Jordan's influence was very clear given that the whole starting lineup, at least that night, was all ACC players. But yeah, it's an interesting list of guys who had been a part of his team at one time or another. Also, one of the other things that I saw at some point, I don't know if this was in 99 or maybe 2000, but Phil Jackson kind of tried to talk him into joining the Kobe Shaq Laker team as sort of like a, you know, off the bench guy, 20, 25 minutes. And you, you feel like those things get talked about a lot more than they actually happened, but it is still funny to think Magic about Johnson crazy. back on the Magic Johnson on the Knicks when he was cu- talking about coming back and maybe reuniting with Riley. Yeah. Yeah. Those things tend to get talked about more than they actually happen, but it's it's still funny to think how that might have happened. Oh, yeah. And I'd never heard that. So um, that final game, again, it's the it's the Allen Iverson Sixers who were headed to the playoffs, but they're, you know, they're sort of peak is just behind them. Um, They're 48 and 34 or 47 and 34 going into this game. Um, Sort of a nice touch. Uh, The Bulls PA announcer, Ray Clay, the one who did the Bulls announcing all those years, the uh, to the tune of Sirius with the from North Carolina is brought in by the Sixers to do that, uh, to do Michael Jordan's uh, introduction that night. Later on, years later, I believe Jordan had a famous quote where he said, I never heard anything after from North Carolina because he was just in such a he was in such a zone. And, and, you know, the crowd was obviously going crazy that that was like, you know, he he just kind of that was all he ever heard. But I thought that was a nice touch that that the Sixers brought him in to do that. Um, Jordan ends up final stat line is. He plays in 28 minutes, 15 points on six of 15 shooting. Um, And that's sort of the thing of Jordan. When he came back, he had to rely a lot more heavily on his shooting, even when he was playing well, because obviously the legs were were not what they used to be in terms of driving and pulling up. So he became much more of a floor jump shooter. Um, But he... uh, you know, a decent enough game in in his final game. Um, you know, it's obviously not game six of the NBA finals like it would have been if he'd stayed retired, but that was his uh that was his stat line points wise in his last game. Just a couple of things. You mentioned Ray Clay, the Sixers bringing him in. Uh the Sixers also present him with a golf cart as a gift before the game. It is driven onto the court by Dr. J and Moses Malone. The, you know, the two of the greatest Sixers of all time and Dr. J, who had been Jordan's hero when Jordan was growing up as a kid. Boys to Men, another Philly institution, sings It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday between quarters. Uh, Jordan uh, ends up with a six of 15 shooting for 15 points, which you mentioned with 941 in the third quarter. He makes the final field goal of his career. Philly's up by 19 points. So Jordan leaves the game. Doesn't expect to come back in crowd starts chanting. Jordan still doesn't want to go back in, but um, Colin sort of begs him to go back in. And uh, maybe for one of the few times in his life, Jordan gives in to what a coach wants. The Sixers foul Jordan intentionally. I remember watching this live and frankly thinking it was kind of silly 
Uh, but he, he hits the two free throws. And then with 144 left, he leaves, uh, leaves an NBA court for the first, for the, uh, for the third retirement. But this one sticks. There's never, um, never really any talk that Jordan is actually going to come back to the NBA after that. I think that like Ruth, like Ali, he makes sure the fans know that he's got nothing left in the tank and he, uh, he disappears for a while. He ends up uh, becoming uh, the one of the main owners of the Charlotte franchise and runs that team up until just just very recently. I believe that ended right within the last couple of months. Yeah. So he in June of 06, he buys into what was then known as the Bobcats. Um, now, once again, known as the Hornets or now known as the Hornets. Um He's a minority owner at first, takes full control over the basketball operations. Interestingly enough, it's an article on the Wikipedia they talk about in the 2010, um, in the 2011 lockout, he was the leader of a group of hardline owners who wanted to cap the basketball, the player share revenue, um, you know, after years. And, and he had famously said in 1998 to Abe Pollin, who later became his boss, if you can't make a profit, you should sell your team. Um, so, you know, I don't, it's, I've never cared for Michael Jordan. Um, it's, he, he always speaks highly of you. He's, yeah, well, he must think I'm him then. Cause that's the only person I've ever heard him speak highly of. Um, it, it, it has always been the object has always been interesting to me that for 10 years, he was, the owner of the Hornets in Charlotte, which is, you know, a basketball hotbed. A lot of guys from there, Carolina, Duke. I know they're not from in Charlotte, but same state. And in this modern era of super teams and free agency and guys kind of calling their shot and ending up exactly where they want to go. We talked about LeBron James in Miami in the past. You never on any level heard a whisper of guys wanting to go play for Michael Jordan's team. And I always thought that was interesting. Um, You know, hard to categorize his ownership of the Charlotte team as anything, but, you know, I think the biggest success under him was they became the Hornets again. Um, You know, the team's never been any good or any of that, but just always kind of surprised me just how, like, as an owner, sort of irrelevant the Hornets were, you know? Mm-hmm. You think a lot of things about Michael Jordan, you don't think irrelevant, and they kind of were, you know, but um got out of that. Um, you know, is still really Michael Jordan since 1998, I'll say at least earlier than that, but really primarily since 1998. Michael Jordan's vocation is being Michael Jordan and all of the money and fame that that reaps. Um You'd never get him to admit this, but you have to wonder on some level. He has to regret this Wizards thing, doesn't he? Every part of it, really. I don't know if he's a guy who has regrets. Um, that yeah, that's. A I don't know point. if he's wired that way. I think, and I want to get to something else about his sort of post basketball or his post playing career in a second. Um, yeah, I mean, it's he definitely is not somebody who's going to own it. Um, and, you know, 
when they did the last dance, they very pointedly said nothing about his wizard's time. Whereas a year or two later, when Jeter did his documentary, his ESPN documentary that he, you know, had the final say on, he at least was willing to talk about what had happened with the Marlins. So Jordan, I think he just tries to pretend it never happens. Regret is probably not his thing. This, this biography, him, this Roland Lazabee book, which I, like I said, I just finished reading a couple months ago. The basic, story of michael jordan from basically the time he was about 16 is that he the man doesn't have any empathy for others it wouldn't seem in any sort of meaningful way and you know maybe his kids or you know his wife or that type of thing we talk about just sort of in the you know and he's done charitable work and stuff but as far as just like on a day-to-day basis so i i don't know if he stops and thinks like boy i really screwed that up or and i don't i just don't know if he's I don't know if he's wired that way. Um, real quick, a uh, couple quick last minute notes about the game. Um, and these are just from the AP story, but I thought it was just interesting. There's a referee by the name of Tommy Nunez, who's 64. He works his final regular season game in that game. He'd been an NBA official for 30 seasons. So going all the way back to the early seventies. So must be kind of cool to have your last ever game. You'll always be able to tell people that your last game was also Michael Jordan's last game as a pro. And before the game, uh, Charles Oakley vented his displeasure, said, if I knew this was the way it was going to happen, I never would have signed here. It's just a bad time. Uh, and that is not the last time Charles Oakley is angry about something. And uh, his career is almost over. He plays seven games for the Houston Rockets uh, in 2003, 2004, which I believe, yeah, coached by Jeff Van Gundy um, the following year. As far as Jordan is concerned, and again, this is from the biography that I read, I hadn't realized, and I, I, maybe I saw this when it happened. Did, did his Hall of Fame speech was like really, really bitter? Basically, he doesn't really give the sort of um, thankfulness um, that a lot of people do. It's basically just about how all the people had slighted him through the years, whether it was Dean Smith. Uh, keeping him off of Sports Illustrated over Jer- about, you know, he talks about how he doesn't like Jerry Krause. He talks about how he uh, he was in a hotel room uh, in the off season and they moved him out of the hotel room so that Pat Riley could have the hotel room. This was probably sometime in the, you know, the, the mid 80s, you know, g- cut from his high school team, all that type, that type of thing. And Lansby says it this way. He says, um, even for longtime Jordan observers who felt they knew him well, it was surprising and even disappointing. So he, he doesn't come off as a, he's not always exceedingly gracious, I guess would maybe be the best way to put it in his rare public statements. And there was a little bit of that in the last dance too, where it was basically like, you know, he would talk about how he would go to dinner and would refuse to say hello to his rivals, which is fine. But then he would talk about how the night before the finals, he was at dinner and George Carl didn't say hello to him. And that made him so angry that he went out and beat up on the supersonics the next night. It's kind of like, I don't know. There's a narcissism there, which I guess there are with all great athletes, but Jordan. That was, that's remarkably similar to a thing I read in a book about David Letterman once where it was like, if you would show up, like if a network executive would show up to try to talk to Letterman, he would berate them because he was before his show or if it was after the show, he wouldn't want to talk to them. And if they sent him a birthday gift, he would mock it for how cheap it was. But then if they didn't say anything or if they said nothing, he would be like, oh, they don't care about me. The, the thing I'll say about Michael Jordan 
and it's tough. Like, A, nobody's all that interested in my opinion on it. And B, you know, how much of it gets clouded with the fact that he beat the Knicks when I was nine years old. And 10 Michael and 11 and Mike, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Jordan is a tremendously successful guy by cultivating a mindset and a persona that no one ever else should have tried to emulate. And I think sometimes, and I, I don't always think this is true. I truly don't know if Michael Jordan is a happy person. Like, I don't know if he's been happy in his life. If waking up every day upset about perceived slights from 1991 might be the kind of stuff that makes for a good Nike commercial, but I don't think it, and it might be the thing that makes for the best basketball player of all time, but I don't know that it makes for a very happy person. But, you know, that's. So you're a lot right, of the your, Hall of Fame. A lot of your top what? guys, a lot of your top guys have dark moods. Well, and to be honest, that is, and I, I'm not comparing the two, but like that was kind of what I thought was cool this year when Jokic won. And he made the thing of like, oh, I like basketball, but like I want to go home to like watch harness racing or whatever he likes to do. Like it's nice to know that, like, yeah, a lot of the top guys have that, but it's not necessarily a 100% prerequisite that you have to be like that. So that's all. Yeah, no, it's kind of like when all these coaches try and, and we'll talk about this in a different context in a minute, when all these coaches try and emulate Belichick, but they haven't won anything and it doesn't work for them or at sort of a more societal level, you know, pop Warner football coaches who think they're Vince Lombardi and they think that all Vince Lombardi ever did was just scream irrationally. So yeah, it's like, at the surface level. And again, bird and Jordan, they were hard on their teammates too, but Jordan took it, or I'm sorry, bird and magic. I should say, um, Jordan took it to another level. And I think you saw that kind of at its worst with Washington, where first of all, they didn't have the talent around him that could withstand that type of treatment from him. And second of all, he didn't have that same ability to put the team on his back. And so it was resented a lot more when it's like, who's this old guy yelling at us type of thing. Well, and, and the perfect example of that, and you know, not to speak ill of the dead, but there was clips of Kobe Bryant in those later years with the Lakers, just berating guys. There was one with him screaming in practice at Mitch Kupchak, and it was leaked out. We were talking about how bad the team was and how he couldn't get any reps because of how bad the team was. And it was like, that didn't make anybody any better. It didn't make the team any better. It didn't make any of those players any better. It just made them hate you. You know what I mean? You know, I, at some point, I want to do another one of these, another five, and I've been sort of back and forth as to who the next good five would be. And for basketball, I had kind of maybe thought either Magic or Kareem, but Kobe might be a good one now that I think about it. So, um, mm -hmm. But that's a story for another day. Let's uh, let's fast forward all the way to uh, early January, January, mid January, Martin Luther King Day, uh, January 16th, 2023, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Dallas Cowboys in the first round, the last game. This was the well, this was the first year of the Super Six, right? The 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 uh, the extra team nah. in the playoffs. No, 
two years, two years. Yeah, this was the second year. Okay, so this is the second year that there's been a playoff game in the NFL on Monday night. And that was the uh, NFC North. I'm sorry, NFC South champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the Dallas Cowboys. The Bucks had gone into uh, week 18 at seven and nine and had beaten the Atlanta Falcons to go to eight and nine in make the playoffs. And this ends up being Tom Brady's final game, at least as far as we know, his final game in an NFL uniform. So let's just we won't go back to time itself, but let's go back to Brady leaves New England, signs with Tampa Bay. Um, Brady's last game with the Patriots. In a lot of the, the closest comparable thing I can think of to the, how Brady's career ended was how his Patriots tenure ended. Now you have to ignore what happened in between, but Brady's last game with the Patriots, you know, and this was the Patriots had been on a run. Forget about even the early title teams. I'm talking about since 2011, where they'd been at least in the AFC championship game every year. They'd been to the AFC championship game a lot, they'd been to the Super Bowl a bunch. They'd won three more Super Bowls in that later era. In the 2019 season, they play Tennessee in the wild card round, and they get their butts kicked in the second half. Brady gets intercepted a bunch. They get eliminated in the first round for the first time since 2009. Two months later, Brady announces he's not going to re-sign with the Patriots. He's going to try free agency. He signs with the Buccaneers. Let me just real quick. Um, I don't know. This has probably happened to, to a lot of people, but you know, 2020 and a first, especially sort of the spring of 2020 was such a crazy time in everybody's life that sometimes I forget things that happened in 2019, you know, that fall, like, like, like the nationals won the world series in 2019. And sometimes you kind of like have to strain to remember it because of how crazy things got in the world after that. But you might remember this too. That was a lot of, that was a lot of talk throughout that 19 Patriots season, which was mm-hmm. basically like Brady and Belichick are headed for a divorce. Like this is going to end. And then, yeah. then there'd be people that say, well, maybe that's overblown. Maybe it's not going to happen, but this whole thing had been brewing for a while between Brady and Belichick. But, yeah. And, and you'd heard it for years and, you know, uh, you go back as far as 08 when Brady gets hurt and there's Matt Castle and then, you know, Ryan Mallett for a while and, and Jimmy Garoppolo. And there's there's all these thoughts that he's, you know, the, that Belichick's not never liked Brady. You know, they they both argue over which guy should get the credit, that sort of thing. Um, well, remember, there was that thing that where he had I think it was 17, one of the 17 or 18, because I remember I was living in Boston at the time. Where they didn't, he, Belichick hadn't named him Patriot of the Week all season. Do you remember this? I don't. I don't remember that. They, they had. They hadn't named him Patriot of the Week all season. And this news story came out, and uh, Pro Football Reference did it. They only left it up for like a night, but it was a joke because you know how they have on the side like all the awards the guy has won. They actually put zero time Patriot of the Week as one of his <laughs> awards. <laughs> and on the. <laughs> The second, fun, the second funniest uh, thing on Sports Reference, second only to Kyrie Irving's nickname being "World Be Flat," but that's that's another <laughs> conversation. Yeah. So, and I'll I'll space this out so you can edit it if you'd like. But Patriot of the Week sounds like something you'd get from like 
if you give five hundred dollars to Donald Trump, they send you they send you a thing that calls you Patriot of the Week or something. I, I, but uh, we could leave that in. That's that. I think that all I think that all political stripes can probably appreciate that. We'll leave that in. So it's also interesting to think Brady and that made that announcement on March 17th of 2020. His contract was due to expire the next day. So it makes sense. But like that was like in the thick of everything shutting down. Yeah, that he, was like, he, he went to Kraft's house and they met in the driveway and it was. Yeah. Mm. So I guess the reason I would say with you, with all the stories and I know you were living in Boston, I think all the rest of us never believed it would actually end. Because, you know, they'd already broken so many other norms. They've broken, they've won six championships over a 20 year period. They won 12 games every year. It was like, no, they'll just keep doing this till he's 60. So, like, it was shocking when it, even when he made that announcement, I was kind of like, I'll believe it when he signs a contract with somebody else. You know what I mean? So he announces he's going to, he's going to move on. Um, it's the biggest sort of media thing since Peyton Manning was, you know, him and the Colts agreed to part ways. Obviously, there's a lot else going on in the world. But a few days later, he signs with Tampa Bay. It's a two-year contract. Um, he debuts, and obviously, the 2020 season in the NFL is so bizarre. A lot of teams are playing in empty stadiums. A lot of teams are playing in very, very limited numbers. You know, so it's weird. But... The Bucks win the Super Bowl. Just so we, you know, they they win the Super Bowl. It's obviously it's a weird year with, um, you know, guys constantly being in COVID protocol and stuff like that. But the Bucks get hot. They end up, I believe, the number five seed. They're a wild card. They don't win the division, but they get hot in the playoffs. They beat Washington in the first round. They beat um, New Orleans in the divisional round. I think New Orleans beat the crap out of them twice in the regular season. At that least sounds once. right. At least once. And then in the conference championship game, they beat the Packers in Lambeau Field. So him against Rodgers to go to the Super Bowl. Uh, they play the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. The Chiefs are the defending Super Bowl champions. They win the Super Bowl. Brady is, I believe, the MVP of the Super Bowl. Uh, he is. And even though it's limited capacity, they win the Super Bowl in Tampa. And that's the first time a team has ever played in or won a Super Bowl in their own um, their own stadium. Yep. So they win that year. A lot of people think, OK, he's got one more than Belichick. He's going to retire. The most human he ever seems is when they do the boat parade kind of thing for the Bucks, And he's drunk at the end of the boat parade, which is like a guy who's very talked all the time about like, He's so strict with himself, like he won't even eat like a strawberry because of the inherent sugar in it. So it was almost like, oh, yeah, he's still got the capability of being a human being in there. It was kind of charming. Like, and you, sh you should also mention that part of that whole thing was that he was able to get Gronkowski out of retirement to play with them. Yep. Yep. So he announces he's coming back for the next year and the Bucks are good again. Brady's the MVP of the, or he's the runner up for the MVP of the league in 2021. Um, they get to the divisional round. I believe they may have actually had a bye. Um, because I think that was still two no, they, buys. they beat Philly in the wild card round. Oh, okay. My mistake. Um, they get to the second round against the Rams. They're down 27 to three in regulation. They're, they're down 27 to three. They come all the way back. They tie the game at 27. I remember watching this game. It was wild. 
But then the Rams hit a field goal at the end of regulation, and the Rams win. The Rams go on to win the Super Bowl. Had Brady left then, he's in Tampa Bay for two years. He wins a Super Bowl. He has another great year. The team is good. Um, they obviously, you know, they they were in the divisional round and um, had this great comeback, although they came up just short. Brady has an almost MVP season at whatever, 44 years old or whatever he is. And for a moment, it seems like he feels that way too because in late January, I believe the weekend of the conference championship games, Adam Schefter reports, and I have this great ESPN article that's like a timeline of this. Reports start coming out that he's going to retire. And it's all over. I remember I was in St. Louis, and there's reports everywhere that he's going to retire, and there's tributes start to come in. And he's sort of saying, well, nothing's decided yet. But then he does announce on February 21st, or February 1st of 22, he officially announces that, yes, he is retired from football doesn't last yeah so february 13th during the super bowl he's texting the gm uh of the bucks jason licked and licks turns lick turns to his wife and says he's really into this game i don't think the fire is out on february 23rd he announces something about that movie um february 27th ali marpet the uh, all pro guard announces he's going to retire. And then on March 13th, after just about six weeks, Brady announces that, no, I changed my mind. These past two months, I've realized my place is on the field and not in the stands. The time will come, but it's not now. I love my teammates. I love my supportive family. They make it all possible. I'm coming back for my 23rd season in Tampa, unfinished business. So he retires for about six weeks in the off season before unretiring. About two weeks later, Bruce Arians retires. Um, Arians have been the coach of the Bucs. They win the Super Bowl. And this is where the first little weird thing comes in because they've had friction in the past, but they've obviously only been together for two years and won a Super Bowl. Arians later claimed that he wanted to retire and didn't because he didn't want to leave the new coach, which ended up being Todd Bowles in a position to be starting over without Brady, but with Brady back, he would retire. That holds water logically, but there's also a very plausible opposite scenario of that, that he retires two weeks after the guy comes back. Yeah. That he just didn't. I mean, cause the thing is he, he must've really, really, if you're going to accept him at face value, he really, really, really wanted to retire. Because at this point, he's already sort of resigned himself to he's going to coach another year. And now he's getting the best player of all time back. And that's what pushes him to retire. That's I mean, yeah, it's plausible, but you're right. There's a little bit of an Occam's razor type thing where it's like guy one comes back, guy two leaves. Maybe that's just all there is there. So in June or in May, he signs this huge deal with Fox News or not Fox News, Fox Sports, to be an NFL announcer. He's, he's still trying to get to that Patriot of the Week. <laughs> um, he signs a deal, a 10-year deal with Fox Sports for after he retires worth $375 million. By the way, that still is not taking effect this year. He's not doing games this year. He's going to do yeah. games next year. Yeah. Um, 
minicamp starts in June. Gronkowski still, you know, Gronkowski was going to retire with Brady because Gronkowski had already retired once and missed the whole season and only came back for Brady. Um, we don't often delve into people's personal lives here, but unfortunately, the story of his personal life is so entwined with this season that you have to. You can't escape this. So in June, story. in June, uh, he's asked about what the conversation with his family was like when informing them he wanted to return. Brady said, I live a complex, tricky life. I'm trying to navigate it the best I can. When asked whether he'll always need football to feel happy, he said, I think I always will. In June, Gronkowski announces his retirement. Training camp starts, you know, pretty normal. They sign Julio Jones. Um, Their center goes down with a knee injury and misses the whole season. There's going to be out for the whole season. There's this weird tampering thing in August that the Dolphins owner has tampered with Brady twice, once in 2019 and once in 2021. That's too weird to even get into, but there was always all these rumors that he was going to become a part owner of the Dolphins, do that for a year, unretire and become their quarterback. But like, let's not even get into that, to be honest. It's Sean too Payton weird. was involved too, I think. And yeah. there's I think something there with the Rooney rule. There was a lot of stuff there. Yeah, that, that's a different Google it. So we go to August and all of a sudden, I believe August 11th is the date. And Brady's not at training camp. He's gone. And Todd Bowles announces that Brady is taking an extended break. He's going to be gone for 11 days. Brady goes to the Bahamas. Um, Bowles said Brady had to deal with some personal things. The, um, and this is where the story deviates into, I guess, for years. Giselle my, had- my, un- my understanding, though, is that that is all just a cover story. And he's actually going to the Bahamas to try and beat up Don King. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were there to fight Trevor Burbick. <laughs> uh, but um, so this is where the stories start to come out that him and, and, you know, Tom Brady for a decade or more, more than a decade, had been married to Giselle Bunchton, uh, you know, a famous Brazilian supermodel, a couple of kids together. There's actually a thing where TV cameras had captured him after the Super Bowl that they won with the Bucks the year before or two years before with Giselle asking him, what more do you have to prove? Um, so she had obviously for years wanted him to step away from football. He's in his 40s. So in September, uh, she shows up or he comes back. Season starts. Bucks win in week one on one of his pro post, or he does a um he does a uh, weekly podcast or serious show. A Mad Dog Unleashed. He admitted he was going through some things. On December the 15th, he missed the team's Saturday walkthrough before the game. Uh, and Todd Bowles again said it was an excused absence um, that, like, they weren't, he didn't just not show up. They were, it was, and what you can tell is it's clearly a thing where he's telling them what he's going to do but he's not really leaving it open for them to say, well, no, you have to be here. You know what I mean? And that's, um, that incidentally, that was not uh, a joke. He, that serious show was on the mad dog sports radio mm-hmm. channel. What I was going to say was that's tough for a quarterback. Like I remember when Roger Clemens came back with the Yankees that last year, and he wanted to basically not travel when he wasn't pitching. There's guys you can let do that kind of thing. 
your quarterback is a really tough guy to not have there all the time, no matter who it is. So in late October, the news of his divorce filing becomes official. So, you know, divorces obviously are more complicated than just he came back for this season. But, you know, it's also they don't even try to pretend, oh, it has nothing to do with him on retiring. Obviously, this was a factor in the end of the marriage that may have been heading towards the end anyway, but is clearly this is entwined in it. A couple of quick points on that. Speaking of serious radio, he had done an interview with Howard Stern, like right in the bowels of the COVID lockdown time where he had basically admitted that his continuing to play had been a sore spot in his marriage. So that's not something that mm. was just made up out of whole cloth. Um, yeah. And I think it was, he, he gave a quote in that interview, by the way, which isn't germane to this, but he got kind of hit for it. And I, I thought he was making a really good point where he said, like, I can't raise my kids like normal kids. Like they're not, I've been famous since you know for 20 years now like yeah it's tough because yeah. it's hard not to be this rich and spoil your kids uh, you know like and people were like oh tom brady says it's tough to raise kids when you're rich I'm like that's really not what he was saying but anyway go ahead no and i but i do think that that in a strange way does sort of tie in because and this is maybe just me being a sports guy above all else but the way this whole thing got covered was basically like well it's selfish for him to keep playing and it's like and I remember having a conversation probably with my wife and, and she, she was probably mostly in agreement with me. And I was like, you got to understand, like, this is Babe Ruth. You know, this is Muhammad Ali. This is not this is not some guy who's the backup quarterback for the Browns and wants to keep, you know, tooling around. This is the greatest guy. This is the guy who's the best ever at the sport that is by far the most popular in the entire country. Like sort of like to your point about raising the kids normal person calculations just don't factor in there and there was all the talk like well you know she's just as successful as him it's like yeah but he's the greatest all time he's won seven championships mm. this is not you know you cannot expect him to have the same calculations about walking away as even a normal nfl superstar would have so plays a game in San Francisco, which I didn't realize was only the second time in his career. He played a game in San Francisco in this season, which they is where get killed. From. Yep. They get, he grew up going to 49ers games. They get killed 35 to seven. At this point, we have to bring up the saving grace in all. And he's playing badly, by the way. We have to bring up the saving grace in all of this for, for him, which is the NFC South. It's a pile they of garbage. Are, yeah. They are in a historically bad division with the Atlanta Falcons, the New Orleans Saints, and the Carolina Panthers, who are all struggling. So the Baker, the uh, Bucks are able to win this division with an eight and nine record. So even though it's clearly the worst season in Brady's career you know, by far the worst season in 15 years or so, they, by the time they even get into their last game of the season, they are locked into having won their division. Um, so in week 18, the 17th, his last regular season game, they play because the 
Todd Bowles is like, we could still use some work. Like even though we've clinched the division, um, Brady plays his last regular season game. They lose. to the. So I didn't remember that. I thought they had to beat Atlanta. So you're saying that they could have been seven and 10 and still made the playoffs. Well, this says despite, no, because they lost the last game. Oh, they did lose to Atlanta. Okay, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, it says, despite having the NFC South in hand, Bulls say he will play his starters, including Brady in week 18. They were locked into the four seed. They play against Atlanta. They lose. Um, so that game doesn't make any difference, but they're the number four seed. They're going to host the Dallas Cowboys, the Cowboys who are the five seed, although in a lot of people's minds, the Cowboys may have been the second best team in the NFC. I think they were probably number three behind San Francisco, but they were a very, very good team. They were just in the same division as the Eagles, who ended up as the number one seed. But there's still this doubt. You know, it's Tom Brady at home in a playoff game. What's going to win out? The 2023 Bucks or the history of Tom Brady? And before you get into this, I'll just say there was a tweet early on in this game that somebody said, and it was like, an overlooked factor in this game uh, that people aren't discussing is that the Cowboys have been very good at football this year and the Bucks have been very bad at football. And it turned out that was the truth. Yeah. So um, I, I had this game on in the background as we were podcasting and let me see if I can sort of pull up the, uh, the, the drive by drive and, here. Um, and one thing I want to point out is if you had told me going into this game, it's not going to be a close game. There's not going to be a dramatic ending, but Tom Brady's last game, like the fact that it was Tom Brady's last game is not going to be the story at the end of this game. I would have been like, well, then what the hell else would it be? So, <laughs> yeah. So they trade, they trade punts for a little bit. And then, uh, Dak Prescott throws uh, with about six and a half minutes left in the first quarter. Dak Prescott throws a touchdown pass to Dalton Schultz. Brett Maher, the Cowboys uh, kicker, misses the extra point. Uh, Bucks uh, get the ball and they actually they go for it here. It looks like, oh, no, they they get the first down here. OK, and then um, OK, Brady uh, throws a throws an interception in the Dallas end zone on the ensuing drive. So the Cowboys get the ball back. They come down and score again. Prescott runs the ball in from the one yard line. Brett Maher, the Cowboys kicker misses uh, another extra point. Uh, Bucks uh, Bucks get one first down and then they punt. And then the Cowboys drive down the field. Dak Prescott throws another touchdown pass to Dalton Schultz. Brett Maher misses another extra point. Real quick. Uh, we You said we were recording that night. And I believe you left this in. We're recording, talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame. And all of a sudden I go, this guy has missed three extra points. Like just out of nowhere. And I think you did leave it in because you're like, hey, you're talking about the playoff game. I did leave it in. And I think I might actually um, find that and splice it in here. Um <laughs> Because there's nothing that says we can't put our own audio clips in. Um, so, probably none of these guys, maybe Roland, but probably, or at least possibly none of them get in this year. But there's a good chance that some of these guys do get in in future years. Yeah, I think Roland will get in this year. 
Yeah, makes sense. So you'd have sort of a a two man duction of McGriff and Scott Rowland. So, so this is fourth straight extra point. You know, I looked at the score a minute ago when I saw it was eighteen to nothing, and I don't know if something screwy had happened. Is it twenty four to nothing now? This they're up twenty four to nothing, but this guy's missed four extra points. <laughs> Sorry, I just. They ought to be really glad they're up 24 to nothing because this guy's missed four straight extra points. Now they win the game now and they're going to play San Francisco. You got to cut the guy, right? I don't know. You got to bring in a different kicker. The guy can't make an extra point. (laughs) That's going to come back to bite you at some point, I would imagine. Eh, Good. All right. Sorry. That's just. No, we'll probably leave that in. This is the Tampa Dallas Monday night. Um, the last game of wild card weekend. I'm sorry, super wild card weekend. So, um, and Andrew and I are both very happy because the Giants won last night. So, yeah, um, that uh, that was that, and I, I remember saying I was like, yeah, this is this is just so crazy, and so they go in, they're down eighteen uh, nothing uh, at halftime. Tampa gets the ball to start the half three and out punt again. Another drive by Dallas. Dak Prescott completes a pass to um, Michael Gallup for a two yard touchdown pass. Brett Maher again kicks off and again misses the extra point. So with 10 minutes left in the third quarter, Tampa's down 24, nothing other than the one drive where Brady threw the, pick in the end zone uh, when it was six, nothing they've really shown very little offense. They're basically punting on every single drive here. Finally in the, at the end of the third quarter on the very last play of the third quarter, Tom Brady throws a 10 yard, 30 yard touchdown pass to Julio Jones, who had joined the team in the off season the year before it's as was supposed to be sort of Brady's new favorite target. Scores now 24 to six. And so Tampa wants to go for two to make it 24, eight and a two score game. They missed the two point conversion. So through three quarters, five straight point after tries have been missed. I, I maybe this is out there somewhere that has to be the first time that's ever happened in NFL history. Well, yeah. When you consider playoff games only go back to the thirties, like it, it might've happened in the, it might have happened. It probably happened in college football in 1908, but. Yeah, because those guys were just punching each other in the face. <laughs> so. But it was also considered like only a game you could play at Princeton and Harvard. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's always there's always so that that dichotomy. It's like foot, college football is only played at the finest institutions and everybody just dies. But anyway, go ahead. So by this point, the the, the Bucks are done punting. They got to go for it. They they miss. They go fourth and eleven from the Dallas eleven. They go for it because they're still down three scores now. So they don't get that, and then they manage to uh, get a three and out. This is by this point. There's about eight minutes left in the. I'm sorry, less than that. Five minutes left in the. In the fourth, Brady does lead them on another scoring drive, throws a touchdown pass to Cameron Brate, gets the two-point conversion. It's 31-14, so it's still a two, still a, a three-score game now. So I guess it had been a four-score game before that, yeah, because it was 31 to 31 to six. Mar had finally made an extra point earlier in the in the uh the fourth quarter. And you know then, what they call a four-score game is a Lincoln. 
<laughs> they actually should call it that. And so they they get an onside kick, but then they just you know they they get one more one more drive. They they putter out, and that's that's the end of it. Um, you got to feel a little bit bad for uh, for Brett Maher because it's bad enough to miss four extra points in a game, but to miss four extra points in a game that is going to be talked about and written about in Tom Brady biographies for the next 50 years. has got to be, uh, got to be kind of tough. So the only other thing you could, you could say though, is when does a guy miss four extra points and it has absolutely no bearing on the outcome of the game? Yeah. Well, that was the thing too. (laughs) I just, and again, I, I wasn't, I didn't watch all this game because, you know, I had kind of was, you know, had it over my shoulder. And then by the time we finished recording that night, it was, it was over. But it was just like I just remember feeling like it was just a butt kicking. You could just tell by the body language of of, um, of Brady and his his fellow Buccaneers on the sideline. It was just you know totally just defeated. Um, Mar was the first player in NFL history to miss four extra points in a game. So that's that. Um, only other thing uh, really worth noting is that one of Brady's receivers, Russell Gage, uh, suffers a head injury and has to be carted off on a backboard in the the fourth quarter. Um, but he, he ends up uh, eventually being OK. He's di- diagnosed with a concussion. But this was only two weeks after the DeMar Hamlin uh, cardiac arrest thing. So that was um, there, there was reason to be uh, to be a little nervous. Um, it's also worth noting just from a, a selfish point of view. Um, and I, I was thinking about this as I was talking here. We usually don't record on Monday nights. Well, we had we had recorded twice in that recent stretch because we we were recording on the night of the Demar Hamlin, Hamlin thing. thing. You're right. That had, happened, and I was like, I couldn't concentrate. Like, I've listened to a few of the uh, in memoriams from that night, and I'm you can tell which ones we recorded that night because I'm I'm barely paying attention. But go ahead, sorry. So yeah, that's probably why we did that Monday night one because we were trying to piece through all the all the various mm-hmm. colleagues of ours from the in memoriam. But yeah, no, I was fine. I was just thinking, I'm like, yeah, we usually don't record on Monday nights. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, it, it, there's really not much to say about Brady in that final game because they just stunk. They they were yeah, never in it. He didn't have a good game. He thirty five of sixty six for two touchdowns, sixty six passes he throws. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's obviously a very, and that's the thing is like his Bucks tenure was pretty much perfect if he hadn't come back. The two years, the one they win the Super Bowl, the second year, you know they're good. He's almost the MVP, but then he had to come back, and you know, and I'm not saying I'm not being flippant and saying he lost his marriage because of it, but he lost his marriage in that season, and the team was bad. He was bad, and. You know, it ended with uh, with what we just talked about, a, a pretty dominant playoff loss at home. At least from an on-the-field point of view, at least you can't look at him and say he shouldn't have been out there. You know, Bray, uh, Ruth should not have been out there. Muhammad Ali obviously should not have been out there. I think you could probably even make an, an argument to some extent that Jordan should not have been out there. Brady, at least when he came back for that other season, he had reason to believe Mm -hmm. that it might go well. 
I don't think that Babe Ruth thought the Braves were winning a pennant. I, I, I mean, Ali maybe said that he thought he was going to win the heavyweight championship. I don't know why he would have thought that. And obviously, um, Jordan, you know, but probably didn't think that the Wizards were going to be any great shakes. It would not have been shocking nine months ago, six months ago, eight, seven months ago, whenever it was, to see Brady hoisting another Lombardi trophy. Wasn't expected, no. but it wouldn't have been shocking. No, they've been they were they were considered one of the, the favorites in the NFC. So you're right, it wouldn't have been. So yeah, you learn a little bit about these guys when you talk about their final hour. Maybe less so Gretzky than the others, because he's the one guy who just kind of called it a day and bowed out um sort of gracefully and traditionally. But it's uh it it it, it there's more sort of uh bad things that happen, even if we're just talking from an on the field point of view on the field, on the court, on the ice, in the ring. Um, even if we're just talking from that point of view, there's not a lot of triumphant stories. And maybe that's just to a certain degree, that's sort of a, a function of who we chose. Again, we could talk about Jim Brown. We could talk about Koufax. We could certainly talk about Elway, who I think everybody knew was retiring and still won Super Bowl MVP. Bill Russell is another one. There's obviously been some people who have gone out in much better fashion, not just like Ted Williams hitting a home run in his last at bat or, you know, the thing with Jeter, you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever that was. But guys who actually were still at the top of their game, guys who won a title, guys who did this, guys who did that. But for these five, not really. It's an interesting balance, too, because there's also guys who there's a difference between guys who retired at the top, like in L.A., but then there's also guys who retired with what you feel like was a lot left to give. And the best example I can think of that is Barry Sanders retired with a lot left to give. Koufax is kind of a gray area because he re- he didn't retire cuz he, you know, he had a contract dispute or he, you know, had Hollywood offers. He retired because he was little, legitimately concerned about his arm. So he retired at the top of his game. But it's a question of of if he was right, he didn't have much left. You know what I mean? Um, Jim Brown's another one. Jim Brown is is another one who retired with probably a lot left to give. So there's definitely some questions there. Jordan retires in 95 and doesn't come, or 94 and doesn't come back. He retired with a lot left to give, um, which I wish he had kept. Um, so, th- so that's kind of an, another interesting story. One time is maybe, is maybe we come up with lists of guys in that vein but um, there's not many, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, uh, it's a hard thing to walk away from. And I think Jordan and, and Brady and, and even Ruth, and I know it was a much different world. I don't want to say they tarnished anything. Honestly, the only one of these guys who, it's a legitimately painful thing is just because of what happened to Muhammad Ali. But realistically, if Muhammad, Muhammad Ali not only should not have fought Trevor Burbick, he shouldn't have fought Larry Holmes. He shouldn't have fought Leon Spinks. Muhammad Ali should have retired when Joe Frazier retired, which was right after the thrill in Manila. That's when they both should have retired. So it's not that one fight. That one fight was just the last in a series of painful chapters. And the other thing, too, is that all these guys, these boxers, hang on too long. Joe Lewis definitely hung on too long. It broke Rocky Marciano's heart that he had to fight Joe Lewis, who had been in, you know, one of his heroes. 
So it, it, Ali, I mean, look at you. Know, we talked about wrestling a little bit tonight. Look at how long some of these wrestlers hang on it. You know, sometimes it's hard for these guys to give it up. I'm sorry, by the way, too. I always make this mistake. Frazier fought twice more. He fought George Foreman in 1976 and got TKO'd. And then he fought Floyd Cummings five years later. Case in and point. It was a case in yeah. So, but yeah. And boxing is different. The nature of boxing is different. But um, yeah, you know, all these guys. And the other one I was just thinking of with, with football is if you, if the argument is that Tom Brady's not the best player of all time, the next one you probably talk about is Jerry Rice. And he's another guy who held a ladder, held a hang on way too long with the Seahawks. So, yeah, he's another one I might want to look at for this at some point. So, mm-hmm. cool. Well, this was fun. I, I, this was really kind of, you know, first of all, it was cool because, like, you know, usually we're focused on only one sport for the night, but tonight, obviously, we got mm-hmm. to kind of delve deeply into to five different sports, which I thought was cool. Um, and the length is obviously good evidence of that. But uh, plus, you know, you do sort of start to see some uh, some parallels between between all of these guys, whether it's in their personal lives and how it was impacted by their careers or just just all of it. So. Absolutely. Cool. Well, we appreciate you all listening. We hope you enjoyed this. You know, we're always trying to come up with new new ideas for episodes that are that are something different. And maybe like Andrew said at the outset, something you might not hear somewhere else. But thank you all for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. And I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.